this started. Um, thanks for bearing with me trying to do too many things at once. I'm not the most technically proficient. Okay. Um, so before we could do the pathway planning, I said, I really think that we need to revisit this document and both the eugenics, electronic government, work assignments, social engineering, it's all baked in. And I feel like if more people were understanding that, that we would be better off. Um, but it's a little dry. And so just so it just so happened uh, that I think it was just yesterday, someone uh, actually emailed me a link saying that um, the Australian Capital Territory, which I have to admit, it's terrible. I hadn't heard of it. It's Canberra. <laughs> it's, it's this little section that's carved out of New South Wales in Australia, their, their federal district, had adopted an electronic health record contract uh, with a company. So this is this red dot. This is sort of my launching point uh, with a company called Epic Systems. And it just so happens that Epic Systems is located in Verona, Wisconsin, which is just a tiny little town. And I'm like, well, you know me, I'm the landscape person. So I'm like, where is this town? Um, and so I look it up and yes, it's, it's actually a suburb of Madison, Wisconsin. And I know Madison, Wisconsin, the summer of 2020, when I drove out to South Dakota to spend some time there, I stopped at uh, the office building of this advanced distributed learning collab, which was essentially the uh, Department of Defense plans for competency-based education and badge-based learning for this next phase of uh, globalization 4.0. And I'm like, wow. And then I remembered a number of other aspects of this that Leo had talked about uh, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison being a center for climate uh, simulation modeling. So that's in this part of the map. And then I realized that Drew Hempel had said, oh yeah, actually there was a lot of eugenics history at University of Wisconsin-Madison, weirdly tied to breeding of dairy cows and the shift from Wisconsin agriculture from wheat to dairy in the early 20th century and how that fed the eugenics and experimental breeding programs that then blurped over to humans and sterilization of lesser people. Um, and then, then in the 60s, this leaked over to the development of an institute for the research on poverty as part of great society. So that was an aspect. And, um, and then it turns out that this woman, Judith Faulkner, who founded the company, now this company, Epic Systems, was, was established way back in 1979. It's a very old company and it's actually still privately held. She had undertaken a master's of computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison very early in 1965. Evidently, there weren't that many um, uh, universities offering computer science degrees at that point. And her two mentors, uh, 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 John uh, Greist, G-R-E-I-S-T, and Warner Slack, who later went on to go to Harvard and uh, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, were early in computer-assisted medicine, uh, both in terms of uh, surveys and medical records. And so, so the, the fact that this electronic health record system is tied into the earliest stages of computing along with uh, the sustainability, the education, uh, the poverty management, the eugenics, and then also more recently the creation of an energy institute that links into uh, nuclear and fusion energy research, this next-gen nuclear, 
that, that interfaces with early level cyclotrons and synchrotrons, uh, the study of these sort of radioisotopes and light frequency all feeds into what the Huxley paper was about. So I'm gonna work my way around the map a little bit. Um, I might just, uh, oh, I'm not gonna be able to figure this out. I meant to actually have a, a copy of the, um, uh, the stream so that I could see who's there, but I see that some people are, are there. Yeah, hi, Leo. <laughs> yeah, Ivis, so I've got Ivis. Leo, Leo's in the chat for a bit. So I've got Ivis over here and uh, Jonathan uh, Foley with Project Drawdown. And this is actually really important because the COP27 is going on right now. And so we need to understand the ways in which the health systems and the electronic twin modeling are gonna be linked to climate outcomes. And you know, this isn't like, I know a lot of people wanna talk about ESG as if it's a social credit score from China. But if you actually go back and look at the history, uh, these, these nodes are coming from uh, Huxley, which is the UK, um, and uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is like the American heartland, right? So at this point, we're not even dealing with MIT, uh, Harvard, or Silicon Valley. We're just right in the heartland of America, which, you know, in addition, Wisconsin, Thorstein Veblen was from Minnesota. So there's a lot of this sort of Scandinavian history of sort of social engineering that, that goes back to the American heartland as well. Uh, okay, so I, I just want to, so, so this is, let me open up. Um, Okay, so we're gonna start off with this email. So I get this email, hey Allison, did you know that in Canberra, they've actually just uh, developed uh, this, this contract. This is uh, April of 2021 and then finalized in March of 2022, this new digital health record solution. And you can see from the executive summary that they're, they're working with Epic Systems Melbourne. Um, so Epic is a global, global system with millions upon millions of uh, client records. I think I've heard that it's maybe 3% of the world and 7% of the United States health records go through Epic. And again, it's a privately held company. Uh, and this woman, Judith Faulkner, is one of the world's richest women. She's a billionaire. And this company is, is privately held. Uh, so yeah, so they've got the electronic health record there. And I, I will point out, this gave me a chance to look back at some of my early maps. and. You know, I haven't been doing so much of the health stuff lately because honestly, like I find it a bit tiresome because people can't sort of bring it, the, the storylines that people are wandering around in about this being China or what have you is, I don't find particularly helpful <laughs> to my line of research. But I was going back and early on, you know, I went through systematically who was at Event 201. You know, and early on in the lockdowns, this was something a lot of people spent time on Event 201. So back when I still had access to my little sys maps, uh, this is a screenshot. I, I created a map with some of the members, uh, including two individuals, Jane Halton, uh, who was, uh, you know, uh, uh, formerly uh, the former secretary of the Australian Department of Health and also ties to the Department of uh, Finance in Australia, who was very much involved in with the World Health Organization and population health and uh, was actually on the board of the Institute for Health Metrics that goes back to the World Bank and was active in the genomic space. So Jane Halton was at event 201, as was uh, Lavon Theroux. Now, Lavon Theroux was uh, with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And Singapore had this early programmable money, clearly very smart city oriented, very technocratic, uh, high levels of emerging technology and 5G infrastructure. And then at the time, they were very much 
templating these uh, apps for track and trace technology. And that's something that uh, Leo and Jason and I went into pretty deeply in the atomic ecologies that these track and trace systems uh, go back. They're well beyond population health management. They're really looking at thermodynamic economics uh, back to the Cold War era and the use of these radioisotopes to do the early track and tracing. And now we have our ICT technology to do that for us. So, uh, you know, I have a sense from people when I used to be on social media that there is quite a synergy between Australia and Singapore. And that's represented in this map of um, the Singapore GovTech response to um, the public health situation there and how that interfaced with Jane Halton, not only who had her hands dabbling in public health and finance, but also genomic sequencing. Now, this was very interesting to me because early on, remember, health stuff was not on my radar at all. And I was thinking that the, uh, the digital identity rollout would be coming through the educational system because that's the door I came in was primarily initially public education and then later poverty management. And so what I had noticed, my first exposure to blockchain digital money was through this thing called, um, I don't know how you pronounce it, CSIRO, uh, Cicero, uh, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization and their Data 61 program, that they had a white paper uh, called Making Money Smart. And it was for their disability programs. And so they were already shifting towards people who were on some sort of social assistance uh, into programmable money and, and framing this as a wonderful benefit. But if you're familiar at all with the Australian system of benefits, uh, there was something uh, in due and uh, Centrelink uh, that, that they were actually automating a lot of welfare in very terrible ways that were depriving people of needed benefits and penalizing them and charging them excess fees and then linking them into work-based placements, uh, which is, I believe, the center, Centrelink program. Um, and there was a lot of extortion around what they call robo-debt. <laughs> um, so like all the bad things of of turning welfare into running it as a DAO and with blockchain would be embodied in, in the Commonwealth of Australia and, and linking that. So, and, and many of those programs were, uh, were initially piloted on the Aboriginal people of Australia too, just like in other places, refugees and people of color and the poor. So those platforms were really targeting these already impoverished and vulnerable communities. Meanwhile, the Reserve Bank of Australia had been involved in new payment platforms linking to a pay ID. So again, know your customer, which is ultimately going to be your digital twin on blockchain. Uh, shockingly, an early white paper I found called A Frictionless Future of Identity Management was prepared by the Boston Consulting Group, the same people who closed the schools in Philadelphia, um, for the Australia Post. So they were working on this digital identity stuff probably maybe not quite a decade ago, but like like around 2015 or 2016 um, with the Australia Digital Transformation Agency to develop these digital uh, identities. And even if it's not on blockchain, some sort of distributed ledger technology with programmable, you know, uh, script, right? A program, these benefits will be script. And, and Australia at the time was doing uh, a universal electronic identity uh, linked to their government ID. All of this is happening against the backdrop of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia working with the World Bank on what's called Bond I or these smart impact bonds. And so you can see how the idea of One Health and contagion management would be the cybernetic containment system of both people and nature 
into compliant behavior tied to smart impact bonds. And, uh, you know, so at the time I, I was pretty clear that I thought that these smart impact bonds, that the World Bank has a human capital project would be coming through education and that big picture learning, which was really active in Rhode Island, uh, would, would be the backing of that. That big picture had an outpost in Australia. This is work-based competency-based learning. But of course, it didn't all work out that way. But so when, when someone is bringing to me this idea of, oh, okay, now we have an electronic health record. Um, there are a number of different pilots with electronic health records in Australia, but all of this like came flooding back to me about this map. And I think that this is really important context. Okay, so, so that's Australia. So here's the Epic system. Uh, you know, there's a Forbes article, the billionaire who controls your medical records. Um, this, this is from a couple years ago. And then it, here's an image here that talks about, uh, Epic and they have 22,000 clinics, a thousand hospitals, 200,000 beds, 247,000 physicians. It's really important that people understand that the, the plan is for, uh, to, uh, to, to, Health delivery services, just like education services, is early on one of the intentions to make this all digital, right? Because globalization 4.0, remote service economy, they wanna, they wanna create platform labor for teachers and for healthcare providers. So you're going to need a digital identity that is unified globally, and then physicians and healthcare providers are going to, everything has to be standardized both within the school space for skills badges and in the healthcare space. All of the coding, all of the, you know, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, standardization and bringing Rama, uh, not Rama, Zeke, Zeke Emanuel bringing in the electronic health records was to create this global interconnected standards-based layer. And NIST is behind a lot of that and IEEE is behind a lot of that. So that like when you wake up and you have a sore throat and you go on an app and you can kind of like just be like, okay, you know, I need a doctor to help me give me some sort of script or some sort of prescription and I have some sort of wearable technology internet of bodies that's going to send them my health data. We need to, they need to know you and your health record and you need to know what their qualifications are and it all has to be facilitated through I believe these smart contract layer networks. And so um so this is all happening in the background. Um, you know, they, they, here they're talking about 162 million patients and $5.7 billion in counters. Um, and then if you understand that the biological digital twins are feeding into the AI machine learning, that's also a, a key part of the conversation to understand. And then uh, this is just from Epic's homepage. It's very cutesy pootsy, you know, like it's, it's very homespun. <laughs> Which is interesting. They they have here some blocks and they talk about their software, all the uses that it's used in retail clinics. Again, we have to realize that there, it's deprofessionalizing medicine. So you just go down to your drugstore. You know, we're in the city. On like, if you go downtown, three of the four corners all have different varieties of drugstores competing for your attention. It's used in hospice. It's used in rehab centers. It's it's used. Um, safety net providers. I don't know what, I guess that's the welfare system. And, um, and in patients' homes. So that, again, this is very interesting. I just noticed this on this image. They have blocks and then they have a teapot. Again, or maybe it might be a coffee pot, but I'm looking at it like a teapot, the patients' homes. And again, we have to remember the first virtual item was put into uh, the, the, the internet. It was a teapot. 
And then they have your chart is in your pocket and a, you know, a jeans pocket. So your digital identity, who you are in your digital twin is in the pocket. And then they say, well, what about the name? What is in a name? And, and here's a quote from their website. Uh, they have a blue book next to it called the Odyssey. Now think about it. This convergence is biodigital convergence through sensor networks to try to have us shed our material bodies, right? And, and to offer up our core being, both our biological data and our consciousness into this emergent organized information system. So the fact that they frame it as epic and an odyssey is a story. They're telling a story. This is a competition of who's telling the right story, a story of containment and cybernetics or of liberation and a potential opportunity. So from their website, it says, what is in a name? An epic is a glorious recounting of a nation's events. Like the Iliad or the Odyssey, our electronic health records chronicle the story of a patient's health care over time. So those are our digital twins in the fourth dimension over time. And they're framing it as an odyssey. And a nation, the next nation, is going to be the metaverse nation. And as I go on a little bit in terms of how the wellness fits in, and you know, I can link this in the comments later, but you know, I've done, I did two different uh, presentations with Sarah G early on about how the wellness space uh, through single payer, um, eventually we'll get to single payer once they have digital identity and evidence-based, value-based uh, healthcare provisions for everyone. There will be a plan for people to have some sort of access to alternative treatments because they do want that. They want all kinds of data sets. And so for sure, they'll offer some of these alternative holistic therapeutics on the condition that the data come back with fidelity, that there's some way in these alternative spaces that, that there is a sensor technology that collects it all and feeds it back into the system because they want all the different models. And so, um, so within that context of wellness and social prescribing, I just want to point out, and this isn't like a smoking gun, but it's just indicative because like I'm looking at Brendan's uh, bio page here over at Social Finance, which is Ronald Cohen's, you know, they're the core of the social impact bond, pay for success space. And, you know, it's like a young guy, uh, you know, working out of the San Francisco office for social finance. So he, you know, he could just be anyone. He could totally be, you know, your nephew or your neighbor or some nice guy at church. Um, but he actually is now at Social Finance, but he did work at Epic Systems. It says he was partnering with healthcare systems across the country to utilize software and data for successful population health and improving outcomes. And so this evidence-based, value-based payment system is being woven into the speculative program uh, speculative finance in human capital futures. Both the human capital futures are improving your mental faculties and what you offer into the blockchain brain uh, from your intellect and consciousness and emotion, as well as what your body does. And I, I think increasingly there's gonna, you know, it's hard to say exactly how big this will be, but this piezoelectric energy, the, the planned exercise, will at least be used to power the wearable through which you interface with the Web3 smart contract layer. And so they're going to be monitoring people's health. And there's a lot with, you know, dirty power and environmental toxins that are creating structural issues for us to navigate and try to maintain our health in the face of like really a treacherous terrain of, um, digital smog and you know it's going to be nanotechnological and synthetic biological waste and so 
you know, it is going to be hard to maintain our health, but it's not for lack of like us being good people and exercising enough, but those are all going to be impact markets. So, uh, let's see here. We, you know, here we have Judith in one of her, uh, presentations. She talked about math. Math is the truth. And so in the story Judith is telling and the like 10,000 employees Judith has around the world, math is truth. That that is the, the truth of what we're, um, what we're li living in. We're living in a world of math and simulation modeling. And this is important when we go back to uh, the environmental sphere. Now, it's interesting to me being situated in Philadelphia that she actually grew up in South Jersey across the Delaware and, um, and she went to a Quaker friend school. So uh, Morristown Friends, she's an alumna of that. I think she went to Dickinson before, in, in, which is in central Pennsylvania before she went to University of Madison, Wisconsin, Madison. Her dad was a pharmacist and her mother was a peace activist. And uh, let's see, oh, I don't have the picture of her, but yeah, so how I made myself a software billionaire with Epic Systems. And her, her, her mother did peace work with the Physicians for Social Responsibility, I think in um, Oregon. And here you can see this, the, the quote from her, math is truth and computer science is what works. Now what works is code for data analytics, what works government, that's the Bloomberg program. It's great to put them together because you need both. And so the Quaker and the peace element is part of it because that's the homeostasis that is running uh, uh, this global superorganism uh, as, a, as a unit. Uh, evidently in 2017, she got in a bit of a ruckus with uh, Biden uh, who was working on the cancer program, which now he's like formally announced as the Moonshot pro Project. Um, and it's, it, there was an exchange over ex accessing electronic health record data. Uh, and, and I'll just read from this, uh, this little clip. It is from August of 2017, Editor's Corner, Why the Biden-Faulkner Exchange over EHR, Electronic Health Records, Access Touched a Nerve. It's hard to say exactly what transpired at that January meeting between then Vice President Joe Biden and Epic CEO Judy Faulkner. What we do know is that it triggered a visceral online reaction. Now we know that's all on purpose, right? Over the importance of interoperability and access to health data, and even some Twitter threads on the nuances of HIPAA, which is the Health Records Protection Act. But that might be more telling about where the industry currently stands and the direction it's quickly heading. It began last week when Politico recounted the exchange between Biden and Faulkner, as told by the vice president's aide, Greg Simon, who now serves as president of the Biden Cancer Initiative. The short version, Faulkner reportedly asked Biden why he wanted 1,000 pages of medical records, to which Biden retorted, none of your business. It went downhill from there, Simon said. Now, um, chime in in the chat if you know exactly why having data interoperability of a thousand pages of medical records is important. Like one, they're, they're going to say for the cancer moonshot that they need access to all your data to like run all of this and that you should have, um, you know, the new future is that you're going to uh, you know, have a digital twin and that you're going to offer up all the data of your digital twin in some way sem semi-anonymized uh, up to the, the, the benefit of machine learning analysis to, you know, do this cancer moonshot or solve chronic illness or come up with the next bioreactor compound. <laughs> um, and that maybe you'll get a bit of a micropayment in exchange for your health data. But don't worry, it's protected through the secret network. Um, 
and, and you can see, you know, if that exchange happened in January, like why they're dragging it back out in August um, to raise up in people's awareness and consciousness, this idea of data interoperability. And this idea that somehow by owning our data that we can be empowered, um, either um, empowered through getting money for that data or empowered for donating or, or participating in the commons, in the data commons for this high level data analytics. Um, now they're, they're framing it again, it's the story. The story is, you know, the guy who just wants to solve cancer against, you know, the greedy billionaire privately held electronic health re records company. Um, but clearly Judith knows where, where this is all going and they need the interoperability because as they make bets on you, on your behavior, they need to connect your behavioral compliance uh, for the impact markets and wellness. And so, you know, I do have this other map that I developed. It looks like in October of 2020 uh, that was looking at uh, impact finance in the health space and particularly looking at um, the state of California because a lot of the early um, work in Medicare reform was coming out of California and the California Healthcare Foundation. And looking specifically at the city of San Diego, which is over here, and how this smart city platform, uh, and including Chula Vista, which is a suburb, interfaces with uh, blockchain identity, population health, and moving over into education and data analytics in the smart environment. So uh, Goals 2000, which is an educational reform program, was actually signed in San Diego by Clinton. And um, so that's the education piece. Uh, they have a strive together in an income sharing agreement and a workforce, workforce readiness program in San Diego. Uh, they are part of the LRNG program along with Philadelphia and about a dozen other cities that like you can learn anywhere and earn badges in the smart city and show your compliance. Uh, and that's connected to the badging and IMS Global Learning Consortium. And those are on the maps. Um, it is an Envision America smart city uh, with a lot of 5G. And clearly uh, UC San Diego, you know, is a hotbed of all of this stuff. And before I, you know, I did that read aloud of Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge, who is emeritus at uh, San Diego State. Um, but quite a bit of uh, research into biotech and nanotech. And of course, the Salk Institute is right outside of there as well. Um, and all of this is being done, this human capital management through the San Diego Regional uh, Chamber of Commerce. These are coming through the United Way and the Chambers of Commerce. And um, the University of California, San Diego also has uh, its own supercomputing center that is a partner with this uh, labor laboratory for education transformation that feeds into the workforce aligned partnerships. But also in Chula Vista, and I knew someone at the time that this was all happening, the early lockdowns and the regulation of processes in school systems was that Kahala Biosciences, which is out of Irvine, uh, was doing, they developed a blockchain testing platform called uh, Adonaya uh, platform, um, which is like safe passage home or something like that. And so they were already blockchaining children essentially in exchange for access to public education. Um, so San Diego was sort of my test bed of looking at population health management through apps and how the digital identity would work through smart cities, both in education and later 
aligned workforce development. Um, the uh, Dan Gross, uh, who was uh, a, a board member of the San Diego Chamber of Commerce, was also on the board of the California Healthcare Foundation. Um, one of the, the, the directors of that uh, was a woman named Margaret Laws, and she had formerly been the president and CEO of Hope Lab. Now, Hope Lab is an effort of uh, Internet of Bodies preventative healthcare and mental health services that was set up by Pam Omidyar. So that's Pierre Omidyar's wife. Pierre Omidyar being, of course, behind a lot of the impact finance, ed tech, health tech, and uh, a good ID. Uh, uh, Hope Lab was the service provider in goal in a, a, a pay for success finance program in South Carolina, the template for tracking pregnant women on uh, Medicaid. Uh, for their behavioral compliance. And Goal Mama was a nudge-based app that they would feed content to pregnant women on good parenting. And that, that came out of Pamo Mediar's Hope Lab. So like all of that is connected into the California Healthcare Foundation via Margaret Laws. Uh, Catherine Haynes was uh, a former operations officer for the Healthcare Foundation. And she had been um, an applicant. There was a whole paper done uh, by... Uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember who actually did it. Um, the, 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 the federal health system, health and human services of looking at the application of blockchain medical records for Medicaid specifically. And she was involved uh, as a health futures director at the Institute for the Future. And they were working on smart contract digital identity for Medicaid applicants. So again, that's social prescribing. You have to perform the right behavior in order to get the health benefit, which might be like prenatal services or pregnancy services. Um, Dan Gross, who is the Chamber of Commerce guy, was also on the board of the American Hospital Association. And the, the American Hospital Association was pushing uh, something called the Social Determinants Accelerator Act. So essentially they wanna use what, and I'm not saying that this is inaccurate, but it's how it's being used. This idea that your life circumstances, like your economic stress, uh, if you are food or housing insecure, uh, the trauma that you've experienced in your life all have impacts on your health. The thing is they actually want to put that all in the dashboard and use it to model your digital twin. Um, so, so the Social Determinants of Health Act was being linked to results for America um, and supported by the National Group of Social Workers and um, impact finance and mentoring. You know, they all wanna give you a nudge and an app to say that we're gonna solve poverty and make people healthier with digital devices that deliver the data, but it's never about that. Um, so anyway, so this is all part of sort of the social impact finance space. You know, it was being funded by Kaiser Permanente and Kaiser Permanente, they were the folks that developed the scoring rubric for um, for the ACEs, for the adverse childhood experiences, because again, that's what they're gonna use to uh, do the risk profiling on you. Uh, and Kaiser Permanente was, was supporting both the Benefits Data Trust, which is um, largely a lot of money coming out of Chan Zuckerberg on that. So it is underwriting, connecting people to public services. So ultimately that's likely to be the UBI. And also on this document called Convergence, which was reimagining education as an impact finance badge-based system. So you, I guess my point is, and like, tell me if, if um, this makes sense, but I'm trying to connect that the healthcare space is intimately involved in, in the environment. Your social determinants is, is your, your living space, the community that you're in, the social pressures that you're in that are being cybernetically monitored by the smart cities, uh, by the outside in robot that they want you to live in. 
and then that essentially our job as human capital is to find some sort of node in to support the rollout and um, structuring and support services for the creation of the metaverse. So, so that is how social impact and wellness fits in. And then um, I have one other map that I'm gonna do is about social prescribing. And I really wanna do a whole program about social prescribing, but I think what the health freedom people have missed in their sole focus like their very narrow focus is they don't realize that what's coming next is wellness and prescribed wellness because what the outside in thing wants to do is I feel like they want to create, you know, this ubiquitous sensing spatial computing extended reality environment and have us perform humanity, like have us perform creativity, have us perform relationality uh, so that it can learn because we're in this moment in which all of this is being fed into the machine learning system. So here I have Bloomberg Philanthropies. It's been a bit since I've hit on Bloomberg, but you know, really in, in my opinion, more important than Gates or Zuckerberg on any of this because he is doing the electronic government rollout and the metrics and the policies that will all underpin all of the social impact finance space and was working through um, Nesta in the UK. Um, London is a test bed. They have this healthy London partnership where they're going to social, do social prescribing linked to social impact bonds. That program is called Ways to Wellness. And they actually, there's some white papers in here linked about Internet of Things tracked social prescribing. So I'm not making this up saying that they're gonna give you a prescription for good behavior, something that will make you happy, and then have some sort of follow-up, either survey or eventually wearable or biometric tracking system that will, will assess whether you, not, you did it with fidelity. And it's all happening within the WeWork Cities program. And um, so it's linked to city dashboards, e-government solutions, and health, like Healthy Years London. They're really targeting the children and they're gonna be doing that within uh, the school space. And then when they come up with these hybrid schooling systems, you know, healthy, you know, activities are gonna look like doing, you know, Wii gaming or esports in front of your uh, screen in your living room. Uh, the, the test beds for this, of course, it's all linked to the sustainable development goals. So while people are focused on the COP27 and nature, understanding that everything is putting nature against people and essentially using, you know, Leo has done so much work about the interspecies currency, is leaking our physical activity and our behaviors to the wellness of nature. Like we need to behave well to earn tokens that we can then exchange and make things better for nature. So we're earning script and we're supposed to share our script with a cybernetic management system of the natural environment. So as we're looking at natural assets in that space in COP27, it's important to link it back to health behaviors, wellness behaviors, compliance behaviors, not just the carbon stuff, not just carbon around buying or transportation, but actually about this sort of thermodynamic economy linked to impact finance. So I'm going to take a breath there for a second. Um, I don't know if, if you guys are following along, if this all makes sense to you. Um, hopefully it does. But now I'm going to jump in a little bit with, with uh, Julian Huxley. So this is the trajectory. We've got Australia. We've got electronic government. We have, um, you know, I'm very curious why Epic Systems is still privately held, like how that serves the function and how... Um, how these electronic healthcare systems are gonna to start to move from addressing uh, 
immediate health needs to tracking your story because they made it very clear that this is your story, tracking your story into um, across the trajectory of your wellness compliance program. And so, you know, we, we've got, uh, you, uh, let's see, the UNESCO, this 1946 document by Julian Huxley. Uh, Julian Huxley was the brother of Aldous Huxley. Uh, he wrote a book about science with H.G. Wells. Uh, very much connected not only to Dallard J. Durjan, but this early, uh, like the Fabian extensions. His grandfather, uh, I think Thomas Huxley, was Darwin's bulldog. So all of this has to do with evolution and the evolutionary progression away from a physical body into um, a swarm intelligence, into some sort of photonic swarm intelligence. And so I'm going to read a few excerpts from this document um, and... And then I have a few videos to play as well. So this is, this is the first bit. This is from 1946. And again, situated within the UK, situated within Fabian social reform and sort of, you know, like empire and colonizing, a colonizing force. Uh, an evolutionary approach provides the link between natural science and human history. It teaches us the need to think in the dynamic terms of speed and direction rather than in static ones of momentary position or quantitative achievement. It, is not, it not only shows us the origin and biological roots of our human values, but it gives us some basis and external standards for them among the apparently neutral mass of natural phenomena. And it is indispensable in enabling us to pick out among the chaotic welter of conflicting tendencies today, those trends and activities and methods which UNESCO should emphasize and facilitate. So again, they're talking in the fourth dimension. They're talking like if you imagine the, the, the Voronoi crystal polyhedra in the box, like it's resonating, it's moving in time. And they're trying to merge the history, which again, they want to capture our history and our story and project us forward into the future. Thus, the general philosophy of UNESCO should, it seems, be a scientific world humanism, global in extent and evolutionary in background. What are the further implications, practical as well as uh, theoretical, of such an outlook? Well, we must examine these in some detail before coming to a consideration of UNESCO's activity section by section. So this world humanism is very much in alignment with Riser's perspective of cosmic humanism, of secular humanism, of the removal of the sacred into something that is much more technically managed through cybernetics. And I feel like in the management of our story over time, this links to something called uh, the selfish ledger by Google. So I'm going to play a short excerpt. This, the whole um, piece is about eight minutes, but I've cut it down into to a smaller bit. And it's about essentially evolutionary progress we have to understand it as both our individual evolution and, um, you know, what would they say? Uh, uh, the Maslow's principle, uh, actualization, like the self-actualization um, of ourselves within the context of society. Because um, I think uh, Roderick, uh, on who's been dropping some really wonderful comments on my post about neuroeconomics, talking about guided um, self-organization, that they want all of these vibrating crystals to sort of come together into a new um, sort of convergent computing phenomenon, like light-based phenomenon. So I'm going to just run this. This codified version of who we are becomes ever more complex. 
developing, changing and deforming based on our actions. In this regard, this ledger of our data may be considered a Lamarckian epigenome, a constantly evolving representation of who we are. This is Bill Hamilton, one of the most significant evolutionary theorists of the 20th century. His work studying the social structures of ants, bees and wasps had a profound effect on our understanding of the role of genes in social behaviors such as altruism. He believed and went on to prove that the driving force behind evolution was not the individual, but the gene. He stated that the ultimate criterion which determines whether a gene will spread is not whether the behavior is to the benefit of the behavior, but whether it is to the benefit of the gene. In this model, the individual organism is a transient carrier, a survival machine for the gene. What if the ledger could be given a volitional purpose rather than simply acting as an historical reference? What if we focused on creating a richer ledger by introducing more sources of information? What if we thought of ourselves not as the owners of this information, but as custodians, transient carriers, or caretakers? Initially, the notion of a goal-oriented ledger may be user-driven. As an organization, Google would be responsible for offering suitable targets for a user's ledger. Whilst the notion of a global good is problematic, topics would likely focus on health or environmental impact to reflect Google's values as an organization. Once the user selects a volition for their ledger, every interaction may be compared to a series of parallel options. As this line of thinking accelerates and the notion of a goal-driven ledger becomes more palatable, suggestions may be converted not by the user, but by the ledger itself. In this case, the ledger is missing a key data source, which it requires in order to better understand this user. In order to plug the gap in its knowledge, the ledger begins searching for a device which delivers the required data when used. From this list, the ledger begins sorting the options most likely to appeal to the user in question. In situations where no suitable product is found, the ledger may investigate a bespoke solution. By analyzing historical data, it is increasingly possible to discern qualitative information such as taste and aesthetic sensibility, which may be used in the creation of a design proposal. With the advent of technologies such as CNC milling and the emergent possibilities of 3D printing, a custom object may be created to trigger this user's interest. In this way, the ledger is able to plug gaps in its knowledge and refine its model of human behavior. User data has the capability to survive beyond the limits of our biological selves in much the same way as genetic code is released and propagated in nature. By considering this data through a Lamarckian lens, the codified experiences within the ledger become an accumulation of behavioral knowledge throughout the life of an individual. By thinking of user data as multi-generational, it becomes possible for emerging users to benefit from the preceding generation's behaviors and decisions. As new users enter an ecosystem, they begin to create their own trail of data. By comparing this emergent ledger with the mass of historical user data, it becomes possible to make increasingly accurate predictions about decisions and future behaviors. As cycles of collection and comparison extend, it may be possible to develop a species-level understanding of complex issues such as depression, health, and poverty. As these streams of information are brought together, the effect is multiplied new patterns become apparent and new predictions become possible. Just as the examination of protein structures paved the way to genetic sequencing, the mass multi-generational examination of actions and results could introduce a model of behavioral sequencing. 
As gene sequencing yields a comprehensive map of human biology, researchers are increasingly able to target parts of the sequence and modify them in order to achieve a desired result. As patterns begin to emerge in the behavioral sequences, they too may be targeted. The ledger could be given a focus, shifting it from a system which not only tracks our behavior, but offers direction towards a desired result. We are at the very beginning of our journey of understanding in the field of user data. By applying our knowledge of epigenetics, inheritance, and memetics to this field, we may be able to make mental leaps in our understanding, which could offer benefits to this generation, to future generations, and the species as a whole. When we use contemporary technology... All right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I really feel like that's a really core... Supposedly, this was, I guess, a leaked thing from Google. And I don't know, you know, you always, you don't know what's what on the internet, but I can see that. I mean, I can see the, this idea of the mind files and intergenerational extension of data and the global steering as being something that we should really be aware of. But you, you don't always sort of think, whoa, where did this come from? Or, oh, did it come, did it come from 1946? I mean, it probably goes back further. I mean, I think it's easily solidly within sort of this enlightenment um, thinking that informed the Fabians and the social reformers that, you know, moved on into the technocracy and in, you know, to, to the, these new phases. Um, but I, I also want to mention the, the slime mold because I think it's really vital right now. I, I believe that we're going to be in the transition with um, sort of the collapsing of the traditional crypto market that many people are going to be focused on the fact that this is going uh, to a, a government controlled system, right? In the central bank digital currency, which yes. And it was always set, propped up to be brought down and to move in that direction. But I really want to make it clear that like in looking at Bernard uh, Lyotaire's who developed the, the, the Euro, he wanted a monetary ecology. They actually wanted a diverse a set of tokens and they wanted to assign the tokens uh, values. And again, this is what Huxley is talking about here is like linking standards and values to this evolutionary process and being able to track it. And I think they're going to be able to track it through the money. And so there is this tension held between a conservative libertarian side um, and a, this progressive tokenized cooperative side, and they play off of each other. Um, so it's important as we see these next phases coming that people not solely fixate on um, the, the, the crypto and the central bank digital currency, but also understand social currency and script in the way in which values will be encoded within social currency. And I think a lot of that is self-sacrifice. And so if we could move away from the discussions of, um, how shall we say, like, oh, like who's to blame in the structure? Like, oh, is it China? Oh, is it Klaus? Oh, is it this? But actually say, like, this is a structural thing tied to machine learning and cybernetics, then I feel like we could start bringing people together and actually focus on the things that are most important. If we could understand swarm intelligence and AI machine learning and the role of the smart contract layer and um, uh, energetic digital money in that space, it could be really helpful. So I just want to show one other short clip. It's about slime mold. And later on, uh, Cliff and I in a follow-up are going to talk a little bit more about fitness path training and slime mold. But I, I want you to notice how the slime mold operates, imagining that each of us are individual cellular organisms that become agglomerated under stress and austerity into the slug. 
and that the, the intention of the slug is to move into this new space to a more hospitable space and then self-sacrifice the originals into this spore um, that will create the, the new kind of being, right? And so I, I think actually this idea of convergence, biodigital convergence is a lot like a slime mold life cycle and that the austerity that's being imposed through the, the debt finance system, through the war system, through the World Bank, through structural adjustment, through um, you know intermittent lockdowns and all these sorts of things are the stresses that are supposed to turn us into the slug and to encourage us to self-sacrifice into the thing. But it's not this idea of self-sacrifice. It isn't so much like, oh, that's socialist. Boom. So I'm capitalist. Like, no, it's a different kind of a thing. They want to to tap on people's um, altruism and get them to to offer them their their most core beingness into this new program. But like I said, I think even if you believe that the Talhar Desjardins was the good guy, like I don't imagine that Christogenesis would be coming out of DARPA. So, so there's no sound on this. Oh no, there is actually, okay. So that's the slug. So John Bonner, he studied slime mold for 70 years. He made films of them as an undergraduate student. Now here's all these little blobs of mold. Slime molds are no more than a bag of amoeba encased in a thin slime sheath. Yet they seem to, I, I missed that, okay. <laughs> when separated, they will pull themselves back together. So there's unity, right? The unification, that's part of like the neural network of blockchain. They're all, all these blobbity blobs are coming together into one unit. Now that would happen under stress. They also exhibit self-sacrifice and then a fruiting body. Those cells making up the stalk will die and those at the top will clump into a ball made out of spores. And then this is an image of the creation of this stalk with a, um, a tip with spores on the end. It is that sacrifice piece. Um, so I, I feel like, and, and you know, you can, you can see they're all sort of going up the self-sacrificed slime mold spore, you know, and we're meant to want to do that, to this sacrificing ourselves. And after all these years, Bonner believes there is still much to learn. And then they have the, the Petri dish and they have him looking at that. So, um, yeah, so that's the slime mold. So I think that there's a lot that we have to learn from the slime mold and the ant computers that they want to use us in that way. But imagine the amazing things that, um, you know, Ant computers can do modeled social simulations if they could get the humans in on the game as well. So uh, then in this slide, I just have another uh, screenshot and, and I'll share this link to the map. So if you guys want to poke around, you know, Huxley wrote uh, an essay on transhumanism in the 1950s. Um, you can read that. He did the introduction to uh, the phenomenon of man in 1959, which was the posthumously published uh, book of uh, Pierre Talhar Desjardins, again, the Jesuit priest who spent much of his time in China, ran afoul of the church for his ideas about evolution and, um, and then uh, struck up a, a friendship with Huxley in his final decade. And then Huxley was sort of a close associate and did the introduction to his book. Now, I have an image here of Talhard's perspective on, uh, it's, it's a, 
a graph at the bottom is consciousness and at the top is complexity. Much of this is complexity theory. And so it, it starts out across the graph. There's a stretched out oval with different embedded smaller ovals inside showing a progression. At the bottom is creation. That's in the lower left corner. And then stretching towards the upper right is this idea of the omega point, which is this, this next phase. Um, and, and I think that's really important to understand. And, and it goes through the, the, the physical universe of life, the biosphere. Again, this relates to Huxley's uh, and UNESCO's efforts of man in the biosphere. Uh, the noosphere, which is this emergent thought form. And then the, <coughs> the pneumatosphere um, and Christ, this Christogenesis. So from geogenesis, the, the, the creation of the planet, to, to biogenesis of life, homogenesis, people, Christogenesis, Christ, and the omega point is the, the end game of all of this. And so, you know, this does relate a lot to sort of the, um, you know, the ascension movement and the new age. Now, again, uh, for this, Desjardins was uh, sort of castigated by the church. They, they did not agree with the writings. They sort of didn't let him publish. Um, but I think at this point now, it's interesting. Um, you know, he's a thought leader for many, many people. And there's actually, a, there was a, a, a push in Philadelphia. Um, it's his sister, Joseph, uh, uh, St. Joseph, St. Joseph's sister, sorry, I'm not, not Catholic, so I got that wrong. St. Joseph's sister, Kathleen Duffy, who's based at Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia. So lucky us, we always have all of this, um, you know, everything always is in greater Philadelphia, is lobbying to have, uh, on a petition, to have Teilhard Desjardins named a doctor of the church and reinstated. And, you know, it's very likely that this, this will come around. It says that his attempt to bring theology, theology and science together is really relevant right now and these ideas of evolutionary Christianity. And that's what Huxley was saying is that our ethics have to evolve with this new phase. Um, she says, there's a scientific theory of chaos that says you can't have any new creation without disequilibrium, but we can't just sit back and say, God will take care of it. There has to be some motivation on our part. You know, and it's quite interesting because this thought of um, new creation is very much in line with the, the theme of the, the blockchain uh, conference last March sponsored by the Mormon Transhumanist Association. They said, what will you create? And, you know, this, this subset of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they, their understanding is that God expects people to use technology to do things like raise the dead, <laughs> right? And so so this is all bubbling up. So there, there's this pressure to bring him back on stage. Again, sometimes people are pushed off stage, then they get brought back on stage. Again, we have a, a Jesuit Pope. And uh, in uh, 2021 uh, of May, there was this Fifth International Vatican Conference called um, Exploring the Mind, Body, and Soul, Unite to Prevent and Unite to Cure. Uh, a global healthcare initiative. And this was building off three other social impact finance um, biannual programs that were put together by the Vatican with uh, Mendoza Business School at Notre Dame. So this was a different group. There were a number of member, high, highly placed people within the LDS church who attended, were among the listed attendees, among many celebrities. But the, the visual here for people who are listening is, you know, it has the, the keys, um, you know, the Vatican keys up top, it has uh, people in an embrace 
uh, in a circle, so cybernetic circle in all of the rainbow colors. So that's sort of the, the photonics. And then the, the main image is a riff off of uh, the creation of Adam, where you have the two hands, the fingers reaching out to touch, only this time they're covered in latex gloves. And so that's, you know, the, the, the separation of into the scientific humanism, into the secular humanism. Uh, so I have two images, one of the Unite to Cure, Unite to Prevent, Unite to Cure conference, and then the original, which um, has God and Adam and fingers, but without the gloves. So, so that is the context. I, I just want to reiterate um, what Huxley is advancing is a scientific humanism with uh, flexible standards that are based in history, that are projected forward in this fourth dimension with a rapid progression and how this relates to the goal-driven ledger and Google, you know, doing a bespoke piece of um, equipment to like fill out that little gap that they have in your data set uh, to get you so that you have the most refined uh, system possible. And I will say, I don't know if you guys noticed, but in the ledger, um, you know, they were presenting it like a book. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that, that this epic software here, that the Odyssey is, is also, it's interesting. I don't know if that's a locked book. There's a little rectangle on one side, but it is in itself a ledger. Like that, that um, ledger system, the custodian of your data. You are the custodian of your data. And if you imagine it in the context of the Cancer Moonshot, right? Oh, your duty is to collect as much health data as possible so that we can, we can um, find cures for diseases for people long after you're dead. That you need to store your odyssey in the permanent ledger of all of your data for such a purpose. Okay, so, so, that, so that gets us around... Um, this, one of the products that Epic has is called Cosmos. Uh, that's the, the evidence-based research and individualized patient care. Now, if you are using the lens that the goal is to have really robust individual mind files, data files, digital twins of people, uh, personalized care takes on a different sense, right? Evidence-based is central to uh, that, the, the shift from fee for service to a value-based program, an outcomes-based program. All of the outcomes-based programming, um, when you see evidence-based, outcomes-based, value-based, that is about data on a dashboard for wellness uh, social impact bond spaces. Um, so the cosmos, I think, like again, when you're thinking of the slime mold, right? So the human self-sacrifice to create a vehicle for the spores to move into some new, more hospitable environment, you know, many of the people who are involved here have been in the, at the earliest levels of space research. And that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit more with Cliff later. Uh, but in that uh, Felicity's, Felicity's Center, uh, the Psychoanalysis uh, Center, uh, Esther Dyson was one of the, was also on a different panel on another day, um, not the, you know, that they were the hosts of the neuroeconomics panel. There's another panel about the future of technology. Like she and her father, Freeman Dyson, who is a, a nuclear physicist, uh, were all about space colonization. And so I think, again, this idea of epic cosmos, right? The cosmos of your data. Um, yeah, if, if you put on the lens that maybe what they're trying to do is to create these vast data sets for interplanetary travel, which is something Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol has talked about, um, that makes more that that makes a lot of sense to me. It's it's a new way to look at it. So uh, before we move on, I'll just point out that uh, her, uh, Judith Faulkner's two mentors. One was Warner Slack. Uh, Warner Slack was only briefly at 
the University of Wisconsin-Madison during her time there, uh, but he then went on to Harvard and he was working in clinical informatics at, uh, and he was a psychiatrist, okay? So waveforms matter and life. He was in the Department of Psychiatry at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Um, and his, his focus has been pioneering research of the use of computers in the medical world. So, you know, you have to wonder how far back they understood about the digital twinning. <clears throat> in World War, well, I'm not sure if it's World, no, in, well, in the 60s, he was uh, in, in the Air Force. And so the Air Force, they are um, really in the lead on the human computer interface because of the pilot and the, you know, the pilot and the plane. So the Air Force was really central in the development of the interface systems between human and machine. And while he was, um, let's see, so he went, he was in the Air Force, he went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then <clears throat> it says he developed the first computer-based medical history system where the computer would engage in an interactive dialogue. And this was back in 1966, okay? So, so if you imagine all of these apps that are querying you for your data, where did they come from? Well, at least in the United States, they came from Warner Slack and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they, they had a paper uh, that was published on that. And, you know, I have a link to that paper, a computer-based medical history system. Uh, there were four authors, Warner Slack, Philip, Philip Hicks, Charles Reed, and Lawrence Van Cura. And it was in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in January of 1966. And so this idea of gathering data with fidelity, gathering data seamlessly at scale with fidelity, that's something we hear over and over and is also very close with um, the education system, right? We can't have the teachers working with the children. They don't collect the data with enough fidelity. Um, so now I'm gonna, re so, so, he, so he was working on the computer-based screenings. Actually, one of the first image, the first programs for the screening was linked to suicide risk assessment. So he was in psychiatry and the suicide risk assessment was a central part of that program, which is, is kind of amazing. Um, it would, they used a, a computer called the LINK, the Laboratory Instrument Computer. And so back in, like these were the first uses. And if you go and you understand that like the crisis text line uh, that's coming through these apps, that later all of that data sets that were connected to people who are contemplating self-harm were later fed to Loris AI for call <laughs> center data training. Like you don't imagine it comes back to this picture of this young woman doing some sort of suicide risk assessment. But the link to psychiatry, it's not just, you know, like regular medical records, it's mental health. And like I would encourage if you haven't had a chance to look at um, over the, the talk that, that, that Jason and I had about the mental health space and impact finance, it's important. So John Greist, he stayed at the University of Madison, uh, Wisconsin for much longer. Again, he, his focus was uh, psychiatry and neuroscience, and he is now uh, involved with something called Merit Solutions. And you know, it's another uh, computerized medical pioneering system. And so they're mining us, you know, as John Trudell said, they're, they're mining our minds and mining us for the data analytics. But the psychiatry is really central in this. And this is from Huxley's 1946 report. He actually calls out specifically the importance in gathering all of this information for this evolution the, the vital nature of psychology in every branch of social science, as well, of course, as to education. 
Admittedly, both deep analytic psychology and social psychology are in their infancy, but the one is revealing in the unconscious a new world, just as unexpected and important as the new world of the invisible revealed by the microscopists of the 17th century. Um, and so th the centrality of psychology and the fact that the Rockefeller Foundation largely funded it, at least in the United States, that the practice of psychology and psych psychiatry, that's key. That, that I believe what they're after is to try to structure consciousness. And I think in many respects, looking at therapeutics that involve cognitive uh, behavioral therapy through like wearables and uh, virtual reality, as well as hallucinogenics, prescribed hallucinogenics, is that they're trying to get, introduce new forms of nanotech to get at the consciousness level. Um, they don't want to know not just the body, but the mind. And then Huxley goes on to say that what they really would like to do is to, um, to develop individual profiles of everyone and apply psychoanalysis, including um, psychoanalysis in schools to education, to the education systems. Um, it says, so one other item which UNESCO should put on its program as soon as possible is the study of the application of psychoanalysis and other schools of deep psychology to education. Though some repression into the unconscious seems to be indispensable if the human infant is to develop a normal moral sense and a full personality, yet it is equally obvious that overstrong or one-sided repression is capable of producing various distortions of character and frustrations to full development, and notably a hyper, uh, hypertrophied sense of sin, which can be disastrous to the individual or others. If we could discover some means of regulating the process of repression and its effects, we should without a doubt be able to make the world both happier and more efficient. And it's always this social efficiency, the Taylorism, the progressivism. This would mean, listen to this last sentence, this would mean an extension of education backwards from the nursery school to the nursery itself. And so, you know, it's... It's kind of amazing that these folks are talking about applying psychoanalysis to infants, right? But you have to think like Julian's brother, Aldous Huxley and Brave New World, like, and Crystalline, right? Like using mathematical simulation modeling to shape people towards happiness, right? The felicitas calculus and optimization, the Taylorism is, and, and that we don't actually like, babies can't consent to that, right? And what kind of repressions are they looking to remove, um, you know? That that is a level of intrusiveness and invasionness that's really um, not good. Um, so so that's how the psychoanalysis parts fits into the electronic health records is through Warner Slack and John Grace. And then I'm also going to mention up here. Uh, there's a section that I think is really important that I've been pushing from the beginning about blockchain. That it's not just a health health um, recording system. Or, sorry that that these digital identity systems. You know the people in the health freedom space were like fixated on it as, you know, a, a passport, a health passport. And yes, that is part of it, but it's also going to be everything else. It is going to be your digital twin. And many places, including Texas and Florida that in the United States are being pitched as like freedom places are pulling in digital identity systems through e electronic government. Uh, and, and of course, Estonia is a leader on that. You just have to look at the digital nations. Israel is a leader in that as well. And the introduction through the back door of e-government twinning. And so it's fascinating for me to read this excerpt from Huxley in 1946. Oh, sorry. Uh, so here, 
Okay. Oh, no, sorry. That was the wrong one. Bear with me. Oh, okay. All right. Um, all right. So think about this. I would say in conjunction with the idea of interspecies currency, really important. The work that Leo has done around um, impact finance, digital money, and interspecies currency is really central. Um, and this idea of the slime mold and us as individuated parts of a super organism, right? And that we are supposed to be sensory extensions of this super organism and the, that the machine of government. Now, I will say here, I would like, rather than imagining government as your local politician, substitute Kubernetes, substitute cybernetics for government. Not like the people who are city council, but literally the mechanical system, because that is the plan. When they talk about the mechanics of governments, they're talking about a cybernetic control grid, the outside in robot. Okay, so this is Huxley in 1946. A more restricted problem in which biological analogy is important is that of social organization in general and the machinery of government in particular. As I've already pointed out, social organization is the mechanism on which man must rely to affect evolutionary progress. And the evolutionary progress is his imperative. And government is the central part of this mechanism. As the problems of government grow more complex, so must the machinery for dealing with them. In general, the problems are similar to those which beset a higher animal and are met by means of its central nervous system. Again, I, for me, I, I see that the, the blockchain, interconnected chain systems are that nervous system and the, the sensor networks. A higher vertebrate must coordinate the activities of its various different organs and adjust the claims of its different innate impulses. So again, that is homeostasis, that is energy economies, that is the stuff that we were talking about in the atomic ecologies piece, is the coordination and adjusting. And that's what Irvin Laszlo, that's why the systems theory stuff is so vital to understand this as a systems theory enterprise. It needs mechanisms for providing information about its environment, especially about changes in it, for correlating different kinds of information, for storing experience and profiting by it, and for appropriate action. So think about what we just watched with the Google thing, right? About um, uh, it needs getting the information, right? Getting the bespoke data thing to fill the data gap. Um, looking at changes in the information, making, seeking patterns, storing it for later, and profiting, and then using all of that to determine action. Okay, uh, okay, mutatis mutand, mut, sorry, <laughs> mutatis mutandis. These are the problems of a modern society, but of course, with the basic difference that the individual being has claims quite other than those of single cells or organs in the animal body. Yeah, so he's pretty much making the direct connection to the slime mold. Furthermore, as we trace the evolution of higher from lower vertebrates, we find the organization of the brain growing more and more complex and doing so in a particular way. Putting the matter in somewhat oversimplified terms, we may say that a series of conducting centers is introduced, one above the other in a hierarchy, each conducting the messages from the centers on the next lower level. Finally, in man, the highest element in the hierarchy. And again, I will, I will say, and I want to go into this some with Cliff, like Huxley is seeing man at the pinnacle, that, that man is the sole trustee of evolutionary progress. And it's a very different frame than one that 
is often found in indigenous cosmologies of being a good relative, of being interconnected and interdependent. So this idea of man at the pinnacle is, is a very different model. And so that they are the cybernetic control system. They are the, the ones managing the impulses and making the, the controlling the circuit, so to speak, right? Controlling the cybernetic circuits. If you understand it as that control mechanism, the idea of circuits and switches and the idea in which the telecommunications industry um, which is now going to fiber, right? But the mechanical switches and the control of information, information theory and systems theory that Claude Shannon introduced is, is, is I think, really at the core. Uh, what they were doing at Bell Labs is really at the core. Okay, it would be in the greatest interest to bring together some of the world's leading comparative neurologists with a group of experts in administration to see how far the study of what we may call the quote unquote machinery of government in the animal body can help us in solving the same problem on the social plane. So I think that's the Macy conferences, guys, like the, the, the neurologists, the comparative neurologists working on the machinery of government, working on the cybernetics. Here, I must leave this vast and as yet scarcely charted field of human knowledge but not before proclaiming my firm belief that the application of scientific method in appropriate forms to human affairs will yield results every whit as important and almost as revolutionary as those achieved by the natural sciences in the rest of the universe. Okay. And later on, when we go back to look at the neuroeconomics and look at Paul Glimcher, uh, who was sort of the pioneer in that field, what he's talking about is wanting a, a unified neural theory of human decision-making. And he talks about the importance of bringing um, the laws of natural science and applying it into social systems, uh, bridging that gap, bringing those two things together. So, you know, Paul didn't come up with that out of nowhere, that this has been lying in the field for a very, very long time. Um, so uh, Roderick had drawn my attention to this energy economy that are the human, e human energy group. Uh, and I have that in, in the other map and I'll talk about that some later, but this idea of guided uh, optimization, guided social aggregation is something that's being put out by human energy. Uh, David Sloan Wilson is an individual here I feature in one of these images and he's talking about completing Darwinian revolution that we, we, we haven't stopped. The next thing is to move on to this sort of collective consciousness program and that that will be done through pro-social behaviors. And again, pro-social has nothing to do with like socialism or communism. It literally has to do with systems engineering and looking at humanity, um, you know, and again, ants have their place, termites have their place, bees have their place, starlings have their place, swarms of fish have their place, but treating humans in these same computational systems, that is they're applying sociobiology to the human systems, to evolutionary science, and, and saying that that is part of the collective sacrifice, right? To, so that we, we collectively sacrifice so that the spores can go on. And this is all being embedded in um, behavioral sciences, evolutionary sciences, and po politics, the, the governance, the, the Kubernetes. And then I have an image here from the Brookings paper, the Ledgard paper about um, the interspecies currency and the behavioral regulation of the health record to the natural system in the thermodynamic economy. And it has the, you know, a lot of these targets are Africa um, because as, you know, Raul had laid out in his piece about um, Nigeria, Nigerian civil war, um, creating not only underdevelopment, but 
devastation and dependence on humanitarian aid that can then transition now um, the global south into the next cybernetic age to jump them from the one economy um, into a digital economy tied to digital twinning. And so this, this image has, you know, a, 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 a village that is in very bad shape and the animals are bad shape with poachers. And then you have a hand uh, with beadwork on the wrist that is holding a phone with a giraffe with facial recognition on it. Um, and like talking in drones uh, spying on, on the giraffes to get that data. And then, and then, because of that interface, then then they have a, an abundant village with solar panels and you know contained domestic animals and and the bounty of their harvest and, and caring providers, medics going to giraffes to take care of them. And and this is all the story that's being told, but it's a story that goes that goes way back. Um, okay. Oh, and then this I have an image here of Laszlo because you know Irvin Laszlo, the Hungarian systems theorist, key player. Uh, also integrated with the Baha'i faith, uh, and they're they're you know at the front of the line because they integrate uh, science into their religion. That in his paper, I believe it was in the mid 1980s, uh, that he presented to the Baha'i on science and prophecy, humankind's path to peace in a global society. And again, thinking back to Judith Faulkner's mother being, you know, connected with um, you know the peace movement and uh, social responsibility, and her coming out of a, a Quaker, a private Quaker school. That this idea of homeostasis um, is a, a global regulation system where the entire planet is conceived of as a cybernetic circuit with sensors, uh, actuators, correlators, effectors, um, and it's a machine. So essentially it's turning the world into the machine, which is um, what Ledgard's interspecies currency is doing, is turning the world into the machine to save it. Essentially, so I think I've actually, this happens to me sometimes, it, it loses the control grid. So I'm going to have to pull the map back up. Uh, thanks for your patience. Okay, so, so that's, so we've got electronic government. <laughs> we have uh, psychoanalysis of babies. Uh, we have, you know, the uh, self-actualization through uh, collective self-sacrifice and slime molds and mine files. All of this set against a backdrop of electronic health records and wellness programming. Um, then I guess the next thing that we'll go over is, since we were talking about the interspecies currency, is this uh, at the University of Wisconsin, again, just a reminder, Faulkner got her master's degree there. Uh, her mentors were associated with uh, the university at that time in the mid to late 1960s. Around the same era, uh, in 1970, uh, was established something called the Nelson Institute of Environmental Studies. It was named after Gaylord Nelson. And uh, Gaylord Nelson was a longtime politician at many uh, levels. He, I, I think he was a governor, he was a state senator, he was a U.S. senator. Uh, he was very much involved in the environmental movement. Uh, throughout most, most of his life. And so they, in fact, I think they said he was the founder of Earth Day, the first Earth Day. And so that the center is named after him. It has a number of programs. Um, among two of these programs were founded by a gentleman named Jonathan Foley. And I think Leo brought my attention to Jonathan with Project Drawdown. Um, 
here's some stuff from his bio. I'll, I'll just, you know, give a gloss. He is a, he's a celebrity. <laughs> you know, he goes way back in the early systems modeling uh, of in, in the environment of both carbon, nutrient cycling, energy cycling, water cycling, uh, making these as digital simulation models. Uh, he has affiliations with the Aspen Institute, the World Bank, the National Geographic Society, TED.com. Uh, you know, he's taught at various universities and is involved in the sustainable grand challenges and also the managing of food systems, which as we know, is part of sort of this evolutionary project is that we're supposed to have new sort of laboratory made food systems and new forms of highly regulated nanobiotechnology in the soil systems to save the planet from the, 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 all of the problems, unfortunately, these solutions are all being advanced by the same people who created the problems in the first place. So, so yeah, so we've got Project Drawdown. Uh, Jonathan Foley created uh, two things. Uh, one was the Center for Sustainability and the Global Environment. And again, global, because all of this is the metaverse. So we, we really are in it all together. <laughs> um, so we're, you know, this thing is going after everyone. Uh, the Center for Sustainability is about improving our understanding of the global environment and how it is affected by human activity. So the management of human activity is integral. That is man in the, in the biosphere, man embedded in the biosphere, which is central to the UNESCO proposal. And I'm not saying that we aren't, like we are, but it's to what end, right? Is it to put a sensor over every single thing and count everything? Um, and manage everything as a machine. Um, but our behaviors in the health space are gonna be related to sustainability. Uh, the other program uh, was the Climate, People, and the Environment, which was started in 1993. So early on, uh, among the efforts of this program was, you know, again, the urgency, everything has to be super urgent. Huxley's uh, document in 1946 is like, things are speeding up. It's super urgent that we do this as quickly as possible. We want as much progress as quickly as possible. And, you know, they were doing, you know, lectures, postdoctoral research, seminars, seed grants, you know, because that's how all of these things start. You know, you, you plan out ahead a 50 year plan and 30 years out from when you want to do it all, you start seeding the grants to make all of this happen. Now, uh, in, uh, let's see, in 1996, so a few years after Climate People and the Environment Program got underway, there was a paper that was put out. And again, Leo drew my attention to this called uh, an integrated biosphere model of land surface processes, terrestrial carbon balance and vegetation dynamics. And that was put out by the journal, The Global Biogeochemical Cycles um, uh, in December of 1996. And Foley was among one of, let's see, one. It was Foley, Colin Prentice, Naveen Ramankuti, Samuel Levis, David Pollard, Stephen Stitch, and Al Alex Haxeltine. And I'm gonna talk about Alex a little bit later. But so they made the paper. And from this paper, one of the deliverables that came out of it was uh, something called IBIS, the Integrated Biosphere Simulator Model. And so that's where they're running the world in the simulation. And eventually, you know, that's the metaverse is that all of this is running in the simulation. Um, and so this is a data set that was, I think, like offered up in, in around 2000, uh, but is continue, continues to be updated. And let's see, it says it was one of a new generation of global biosphere models with dynamic global vegetation um, modeling to consider changes in vegetation composition and structure in relation to environmental change. 
And if you've watched some of the videos that we have done, we've talked about those NF trees, you know, and that we need drones surveilling everything uh, to, over the, the rainforest to monitor vege vegetation changes. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that was, that's all the data that's being fed into the system. Now, when that was set up 20 years ago, like the idea of swarm drones and, you know, real time, uh, modeling was not available, but, but this was what they needed to have first was to get the structure set up in the simulation. And, um, let's see, let's see what just, to, the, yeah. So, uh, he also fully was connected with the university of Minnesota. There was an Institute for the environment there, um, that he set up. So again, upper, upper Midwest heartland of America, um, sort of at the, the node of the, the, simulation model environmental approach to engineering the world as a machine. So, and I, I will just touch on the fact that Alex Haxeltine, he was one of the other co-authors of the paper. It was funded by the National Science Foundation. And uh, since for the past 21 years, he has been a visiting research fellow and research associate at the University of East Anglia. Um, that's Alex. So he's, he's been embedded at East Anglia for quite some time. And, and I came across this when I was doing our atomic ecologies research. And like, you just don't really know where this stuff comes from. Uh, but actually one of the earliest climate uh, research units in the world uh, was based at the University of East Anglia, um, which also does stuff with creative writing and science. I guess it's one of these more modern universities. It's in uh, Norfolk and uh, I think, yeah, Norfolk, UK. And yeah, in 1972, so again, a couple years after this, this uh, the Nelson Environmental Institute is set up in Wisconsin, uh, they get a, a research unit. It is uh, what the, a main advocate for this. His name was Solly Zuckerman, who is a zoologist. Uh, he was part of operations research and a, a, a high level advisor to the UK government in World War II and an advisor on nuclear research as well. Um, uh, and he was sort of a father and a pioneer in um, operations, operation research uh, management. And so, so that, that, that's important to note, okay? Um, and the chancellor at, I'm not sure if it's at the time, Oliver Franks, he was the uh, UK ambassador to the United States and he was uh, connected to the Quakers and uh, uh, Clement Attlee. And so he was the chancellor. So we have like Quakers, the Pilgrim Society, US ambassador, like highly connected. Um, and, and within the background of this University of East Anglia is the Gurney family. The Gurneys were a Quaker family, bankers that enacted like one of the worst economic crashes um, up until the 2008 crash by like sneaky dealings in creative finance. And their home estate, which is Earlham Hall, is it ended up being on the campus, incorporated into the campus of uh, the University of East Anglia. Um, so, so this is all of this backdrop. And the climate research unit, like I'm, I'm just gonna show on the map, uh, it was it was essentially the among the first funders were British Petroleum and Royal Dutch Shell. And, and the Wolfson Foundation and the Nuffield Foundation, which is a car company. But big oil, like from the very beginning, had founded this. And, you know, maybe someone wants to tell the story that like, oh, like it's just fine because like they just woke up and realized that they were doing bad things. But I don't think so. I think that the extractive industries were understanding that the next layer of extraction was data extraction. And, 
and that that was coming. And so the story had to be told around the climate. Now, ironically, the first director, um, uh, let's see, his name was uh, Hubert Lamb, and he was also a Quaker uh, and a meteorologist. He was like a head meteorologist at the UK before he took on the position. And his theory was actually that, that a new ice age was coming. And so eventually he got kicked out because it's like, um, yeah, no, not the ice age. We don't need ice age. We need, we need, we need everything melting, and 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 that that's what we need. So, um, and there was there was some other stuff around there. Um, uh, let's see. A co-founder was Keith Clayton, who was a geomorphologist who. Uh, I, I think actually spent some time are studying uh, remote satellite sensing out of SUNY Binghamton uh, in the 1960s. So early, early uh, uh, satellite sensing systems. And let's see, Brian Fennell, who was a geologist. And uh, one of the directors, his name was uh, Phil Jones, which I guess in the early 2000s, there was this thing called Climate Gate, which I wasn't familiar with, but that there were these hacked emails that threw the entire thing into sort of question. So like there's a lot of backstory about the University of East Anglia and the climate research se section, but the fact that Alex Hazeltine, who was working on this paper that essentially laid the groundwork for the biosphere simulator was coming out of that space is, is, is important, is important to note. Um, okay, so that's the environment part. Uh, I will say also, and I, you know, this, this comes up more in uh, the, the other map, and I'm gonna get to it with Brazil, but the idea of managing poverty and that the fact that the great, Johnson's Great Society came with like the carrot and the stick, and the stick was increased policing and management of the poor. So there was an offer made of care, but it wasn't just out of charitable interest, it was actually about controlling um, the poor in an environment where of industri increased industrialization, right, of, of industrialized work and managing excess labor and finding ways of managing excess labor that wouldn't throw the whole thing into unbalance and, and chaos. And so great society offered public benefits to people, but it also came with increased policing. And Elizabeth Hinton's book, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, goes into that in, in great detail. Now, she's a professor at Harvard, so do I think Harvard is, you know, clearly they're also telling a story in a certain way for a certain purpose. And I would, I could totally, reading between the lines, see how her analysis would set the stage for social impact finance coming on, like for better accountability um, and the removal of policing in favor of, I don't know, like maybe some billionaires backing UBI. But the history of it, for me, it really opened my eyes as to what the Great Society was really about. And so uh, in 1966, uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison became a center for uh, researching poverty in conjunction with the Great Society, and it, it was centered around data, even as early as 1966. So this is the same time that Judith Faulkner is getting her uh, master's degree in computer science, that they are working on poverty management through data analytics. And one of the things, like they worked on many, many projects, uh, but one of them was actually looking at a guarantee, like an income maintenance experiment. Um, and uh, so I thought that was interesting because to me that feels very much about UBI. And so I'll just take a moment here to, to point out, to dip into another map that I made that's also from Little Sis that's quite old, but it was, it was examining something called Produce Rx as in a prescription. That was the central feature. Uh, it had a unit called uh, DC Produ Produce Rx, uh, which was in the uh, District of Columbia. 
And it was this idea, they had a program called DC Greens, uh, which was offering food assistance for healthy food for people who were food insecure and maybe on SNAP or some sort of uh, food assistance program. Now, do I think that, that those people should, like that everyone should have access to affordable, healthy food? Yes, definitely. Um, but the thing is, when you, when you back up the idea that you are prescribing food, that food is a prescription as opposed to that people have access and then they can make their choices. Like, you know, assuming, again, once we get to a point that people have access and that it is economically viable, like, I don't think we should be prescribing food to people and then using uh, technology to keep track of if they're in alignment with the food that we have prescribed. Uh, this is part, the food prescriptions are part of the social determinants of health program. And there, there is an emphasis now on having prescriptions for produce. Uh, that was coming out of the Center for Health Law and Policy Implementation. So it's like, oh, well, we'll pay to take to feed poor people if we don't later have to deal with hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. Um, but that's conditional, and that actually doesn't affect any of the structure that caused the problem in the first place. Now, the SNAP, that was one of the first use case scenarios that I saw was in the state of Illinois coming up with a program to uh, a thought experiment. They hadn't actually implemented it, but that you could code nudges into your food assistant. So if you chose, made the, the preferred choice, you would get a bit of a kickback into your account. And this was all digital on blockchain. I believe that is gonna be connected to the, the benefits data trust program that is being run through uh, with assistance from, you know, many of the, the players that we know, including Chan Zuckerberg, and that again, they want to get people on assistance because they would like to get them on smart cards. They would like to get their biometric payments, um, you know, the school lunch programs. And again, the healthy lunch programs are part of that. Do I want kids to have like healthy, tasty lunches? Yes, but like, all of these major food businesses, these you know global corporations, um, are in that space, right? And 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 even in Philadelphia, the facilities aren't there to actually cook lunches. Like we, many of our schools are old from the days when kids would go home for lunch, and they don't even have kitchens. So you end up with like really crap food, even though that they say it's healthy. Um, and prescribing it and linking that into your biometric fingerprint payment or your QR code payments for the kids in the schools. Um, and I had a lot of concerns about that and not surprisingly piloted in the District of Columbia, you know, predominantly black without its own like robust re representation. Like it's a task bed. That's, that's where they find these things. And, you know, it's around controlling the food supply, uh, the food chain systems. Um, there, there's another document that I had called uh, Resetting the Table, uh, the Moment to Transform the U.S. Food System. You know, and I have concerns because I've, I've written pay, uh, several blog posts about Zach Bush and his partnership with Bank of America on this idea of soil tubes and tabletop gardens in food pantries, in food deserts, and the way in which these uh, micro gardens could be turned into impact finance through like work-based training or, you know, produce prescriptions or educational programs for food, that all of this is being layered in. And if you don't actually understand the origin of it, um, you're, you're going to blunder into a story that you're, it's a game that you're not actually in control of, um, linked to, again, the health space. So, uh, yeah, so we've got the poverty. So, and I will, I will just link through to the UNESCO. Uh, again, this is talking about natural science. Um, 
the, the importance of science in bringing peace and unifying man um, and, and raising the level of human welfare, that that is their plan, to use science to advance every part of the world. So that is UNESCO, getting into every crevice and crack. You know, that is the, you know, that the article in Silicon Icarus about the Nigerian civil war, right? Use SAP development aid to create the networks both within giant NGOs, the refuge, you know, IRC, the Refugee Commission, um, the faith communities, set up your network so that 50 to 70 years down the line, then you can move into this next phase of convergence, right? So here he says, it's necessary to have science advancing every part of the world, not merely a few favored countries, for the problems to be solved and the methods of application differ from region to region. So they want to get into every, from a social systems engineering, they want to be able to track and identify the energetics, the value systems and the consciousness and the cosmologies and the energetics of people all around the world. Um, so yeah, and science is the answer. Uh, then moving up, we have the genetics department. Uh, the, you know, I think Drew, I think Drew Hempel was the one who drew my attention to the fact that they're, uh, that the University of Wisconsin-Madison was a center in the genetics uh, and eugenics space. Uh, Leon Cole, uh, so the, the, the first, the department was set up in 1910. And evidently uh, this, who, I'm trying to look, uh, William Horde. <laughs> he was the one who turned, I guess, Wisconsin into cheese land, into dairy land. And he enacted that shift. And so there was a lot of work around experimental breeding and the raising of quality livestock and dairy cows. And they brought Leon Cole on board. Uh, this is Dr. Cole here in his bow tie. Uh, and he was not only working on um, the uh, breeding programs, but also uh, banding birds and banding fish. So in the early 1900s, already looking at tracking uh, population systems and doing sort of management and 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 uh, simulations and modeling of these systems through bird banding and and fish banding. So eugenics, you know, was a key part of that. I have a paper that I pulled in. Um, there were several articles about by Leon Cole, uh, biological eugenics, uh, relation of philanthropy and medicine to race betterment. The study of genetics shows no race can be bred immune to all disease. Nevertheless, medicine and charity must pay more attention to heredity. And then the relation of eugenics to uh, eugenics. And what I keep asserting uh, within the backdrop of the synthetic pretenders uh, unfolding of digital identity in California is that it's linked like from the mission system through the Human Betterment Foundation. And that, you know, the Stanford program, uh, you know, the first president of Stanford, I, I can't remember if it was it wasn't Terman, I don't think. But the first president of Stanford was part of the Human Betterment Foundation. So we should, it should not be a shocker to us that the Manhattan Project segued into human genome, segued into bio-nano, bio-digital convergence, that this has been coming for a really long time. And then it became not popular to call it eugenics anymore. So then we, we just, uh, you know, now we're rebranding, we're doing the rebrand. Now, I do think that the radioisotope program is central to some aspect of this. And you know the fact that the Department of Energy, the Atomic Energy Commission is linked to um, supercomputing uh, around uh, health and proteins and DNA and the fact that 
you know, these early track and trace isotopes and medical interventions came out of, you know, the UC Berkeley cyclotrons and then scaled after Oak Ridge National Labs could make them much larger and the entire industry of creating the radionucleotide industry for medical purposes is like coming on board now. And I think I feel like it's connected to this shift also to photonics and optics to this next level of computing. Um, University of Wisconsin did have its own cyclotron and they were uh, working in radionuclide. Uh, here's, here's a picture of it, the cyclotron lab, uh, uh, the, you know, welcome to the cyclotron research group uh, in the Department of Medical Physics. So this is linked to the, the biophysics. And uh, they, they've gotten some uh, grants from the ARPA-E uh, in plasma physics. They have this giant plasma physics lab. So again, this is, this is the backdrop to that. And uh, they had what's called a syn synchrotron, synchrotron. Uh, this Aladdin, uh, a synchrotron radiation center uh, from the 1960s through 2011, I think. And they were looking at spectroscopy and light. So within, and, and then a spinoff of the university itself, and because, you know, so many of these universities, and again, they're land grant colleges that were established on indigenous lands. They're, you know, since the Bay Dole Act, the universities are just crucibles for creating sort of corporate spinoffs and corporate research. And so one of these spinoffs was something called Shine. Again, thinking about um, light, <laughs> Lucifer, um, the sunlight, uh, you know, Apollo, uh, you know, all of the, 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 the different, you know, the sun gods. Um, Shine, was a nuclear fusion, uh, this next-gen nuclear program, uh, and it was spun out of the University of Wisconsin in 2005. Uh, it's on the page of this Energy Institute, which I think was established later, like in 2010, the Wisconsin Energy Institute that's embedded on the campus. But the spinoff by Greg uh, uh, Pfeiffer uh, is working on nuclear fusion technology and also uh, medical isotopes and really expanding that. And that's what, what Mark Andreessen is talking about with this next-gen nuclear. That's what the, the, the wrong kind of green are going to be advancing uh, for sustainability, right? Is that we, we need this modular nuclear program. So, you know, I just, oh, and then I forgot to say, so this is, so here's just an image from the Shine website talking about nuclear fusion and, you know, the most powerful form of energy production and you know it's going to be so good no carbon emissions right because everything has to be about carbon nothing else don't think about any of the other toxins we're just going to talk about carbon and you know it's it says that it's uh uh that that the fusion will have more energy and um will use deuterium and tritium as fuels and you know they're like limitless free energy that's sort of like the pitch and they they're, they're going to use uh these objects in uh, medical research, and then they have a whole page here on Shine's business model in medical isotopes in uh, various kinds of cancer. So then you can see Biden's cancer moonshot, where that comes in. Like, we'll just install your cargo compartment nuclear, next-gen nuclear, and you can just top off with your radioisotopes. Now, it's quite interesting that last year, uh, last summer in July of 2021, they finished a $150 million financing round specifically on medical isotope production. And uh, the, the, the lead funder in this round was uh, Coke Distributed technolo Technologies. Uh, that's Coke Industries. And again, that's exactly what Mark Andreessen had said was that we should get Coke Industries, really piss off the progressives and get the Coke brothers to fund the Nixon's thousand nuclear generators that he didn't get. Um, so that's, you know, 
that's where this is coming. And for me, it was very interesting to think about this Huxley section. Is there talking about in a really, oh gosh, I didn't talk about the eugenics. I'll go back to that. In really racist ways about backward areas and bringing in the light, bringing in the light, bringing in the light. And I, I can't look at that anymore without contemplating the photonics, both biophotonics, our natural biophotonic systems and their photonic intentions of photonic computing systems. But before I go in there, I do want to read the bit about eugenics from Huxley, because this just shows in stark relief, you know, as Cliff always says, what are you listening to? Like maybe that this thing you're listening to isn't great. Um, so this is Julian Huxley, just to clarify, these are not my words from 1946, the UNESCO charter, the principle of equality and the fact of inequality. Finally, we come to a difficult problem, that of discovering how we can reconcile our principle of human equality with the biological fact of human inequality. Perhaps the problem is not so difficult as it appears when stated in this paradoxical form, for the contradiction largely disappears as soon as it is realized that equality is used in two very different senses. The democratic principle of equality, which is also UNESCO's, is a principle of equality of opportunity, that human beings should be equal before the law, should have equal opportunities for education, for making a living, for freedom of expression and movement and thought. The biological absence of e equality, on the other hand, okay, the biological absence of equality, on the other hand, concerns the natural endowments of man and the fact of genetic difference in regards to them. There are instances of biological inequality which are so gross that they cannot be reconciled at all with the principle of equal opportunity. And thus, low-grade mental defectives cannot be offered equality of educational opportunity, nor are the insane equal with the sane before the law or in respect of most freedoms. However, the full implications of the fact of human inequality have not often been drawn and certainly need to be brought out here as they are very relevant to UNESCO's tasks. Wow, right? Low-grade mental defectives cannot be offered equality of education, nor are the insane equal before the law or in respect to most freedoms. So you just have to understand what are the qualifications of insanity. Um, it, that he then goes on to say, it is therefore of the greatest importance. So here they're actually coming from the, the, the idea of experimental breeding, right? And hybridization um, and animal husbandry and botany, like Luther Burbank and all these people, like they want the DNA, they want the mixed um, material so that they can use it, like ultimately where it's going is like for their bioreactor. So it is therefore of the greatest importance to preserve human variety, all attempts at reducing it, whether by attempting to obtain greater purity and therefore uniformity within a so-called race or national group, or by attempting to exterminate any of the broad racial groups, which gives our species its major variety, are scientifically incorrect and opposed to long run human progress, right? So don't do it because it's opposed to progress over the long run. On the contrary, UNESCO should aim at securing the fullest contribution to the common pool from racial groups, which owing to their remoteness or their backwardness have so far had little share in it. Um, and then it says later, uh, while the social difficulties caused by wide racial crossing may be too great to permit the deliberate large scale use of it as a means of still further increasing the extent of human genetic variability, we must assuredly make the best use of variability which already exists. So yeah, so this is bioprospecting, like this is the bioprospecting plan. And then, 
And then last but not least, this is the last bit. It says, um, it's talking about eugenics and legitimizing eugenics. Still another and quite different type of borderline subject is that of eugenics. It has been on the borderline between the scientific and the unscientific, constantly in danger of becoming a pseudoscience based on preconceived political ideas or on assumptions of racial or class superiority and inferiority. It is, however, essential that eugenics should be brought entirely within the borders of science for, as already indicated, in the not very remote future, the problem of improving the average quality of human beings is likely to become urgent. And this can only be accomplished by applying the findings of a truly scientific eugenics. So, you know, yeah. So you like scientific eugenics, that was their goal, right? And that's, that's, that has to be understood again within managed poverty. Oh, and I forgot to say the other thing about managed poverty. So Alex Hazeltine, one of the other things he was working on, um, he was a co-author on an EU funded paper on social currency in 2014. So we've got transformative social innovation theory, game changers and transformative social innovation, the case of the economic crisis and the new economy. And this is a working paper. So this is the way you manage the poor into the evolutionary scale through managing their economic system. And then the table of contents, remember this is 2014, includes chapter three, game changers or the economic crisis. Chapter four, narratives on change. For, for example, a new social economy. Chapter five, system innovation, welfare reform. Section six, social innovation, complementary currencies. And, and chapter seven, societal transformation. And so what I would say is I would, I'm just asking for folks who um, are in this complementary currency space, right? Local currency, uh, you know, this, this story that's being told that you can be outside the system and have your own currency. Like understand that these people who are running the cybernetic game, like they're all about that. They're all about that. So that when it swings back from the, the, the gross greedy crypto bros into the complement progressive complementary currency space, like don't be surprised and think about the influencers out there who are maybe engaging in talking about local economics, but without mentioning all of the systems engineering and the fact that this backstory is going on as well. Like these are parallel stories being played out. And if you don't know the other stories that are in the space, you're gonna be at a terrible disadvantage in my opinion. So this is just a graphic from this paper that's talking about, it goes from economic crisis to climate change to ICT revolution. I mean, 2014, they're just laying it out. System innovation and health and well-being, energy, transportation, water, finance. You know, I've been talking about this for quite some time and you guys who are on here, you're, you, you know what I'm talking about, but it's very important to see it laid out in 2014, paid for by the EU. And then I'm gonna just run this quick uh, video uh, about INET and I have an old blog post. It's called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Many, uh, you know, we, we talk about George Soros. Yeah, George Soros is a problem. He's not buying, like in my opinion, really so much activists on the street, although maybe selective ones, but he's buying economists and he's buying all of these economists. If you look at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, they laid this all out. They laid the social change towards convergence for this evolutionary process that was imagined solidly in 1946. And in this clip, he is talking about setting that up. And, and later on, I will link to that blog post, but it talks about 
base of the pyramid poverty mining towards this new uh, economic system. And I'm gonna- theory has to be rethought from the ground very similar to the bankruptcy of the global financial system after Lehman Brothers. The first phase of INET was to show the bankruptcy of the existing. And that, I think, uh, is, I hate to use this term, mission accomplished. That phase is now uh, pretty well done as far as INET is concerned. Uh, we are now entering the phase where we have to produce uh, uh, new theories. It's now the constructive uh, phase. It's primarily the, uh, directed at the uh, academia, at the uh, economics departments of universities, and there we now have a senior fellow uh, Lord Edward Turner joining us, who will be in charge of developing that aspect of INET. In the long term, I hope that uh, this very rapid development uh, can be maintained. Fundamental rethinking of the assumptions and axioms on which uh, economic theory has been uh, based, uh, because um, economics has been uh, trying to come up with uh, uh, universally valid laws similar uh, to Newtonian uh, physics. And that, I think, is an impossibility. So you need a new approach with uh, different methods and also different criteria of what's acceptable. All right, different criteria of what is acceptable, right? So, you know, I, I've known about this, inter this, that interview was from 2013. I mean, you can see it down here. It's a 2013 interview. Uh, so we're going not quite 10 years, but this has been in the pipeline for a long time. Um, and this is the economic transformation. It's not coming from the you know, it's, it's, it's an emergent phenomenon that is worldwide because the metaverse is a, is a worldwide project. And so it has to thread the needle between um, like the collectivist mindset and the capitalist mindset. Like it's, it's working really hard to, to approach both sides of it. So, um, okay, so then we have, yeah, how you manage the poor. You manage the poor through managing their money with uh, community currencies and have it programmed and have it programmed with values so that the, the values become machine readable. Uh, you normalize eugenics and you call it, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you call it uh, nanobiotechnology and precision personalized medicine. And then just going back to this, the shine, remember, and the, the radio, the medical radioisotopes and the next gen nuclear uh, and the shift to photonics. Um, this is where Huxley is talking about these backwards communities and letting the light in. And so for me, again, that's also central to the Quaker tenet of like the light within. Um, and, and I feel like they are trying to corral the biophotonic power systems into, um, uh, you know, in, into the, 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 
Voronoi blockchain crystalline thing, right? They're, they're trying to capture the actual biophotonic like systems of our consciousness and our soul into their sim simulation, right? Into their environmental simulation. They hit, say, you know, come down here and do, uh, you know, this environmental simulation because if not, the world is going to end and you have to do it or you're a terrible person. So this is what UNESCO is saying about photonics. Um, and it's grounded in this eugenic outlook. Uh, from this global aim, another principle immediately follows. It is that UNESCO should devote special attention to the leveling up. Now, that's an interesting choice of words, leveling up in the gamification of educational, scientific, and cultural facilities in all backward sectors where these are below the average, whether these be geographical regions or underprivileged sections of a population. To use another metaphor, it must attempt to let in light. Let in light on the world's dark areas. Now, I would say for someone who's been long operating in the education space, what comes out to me is that they were always talking about gaps, the gaps, um, closing the digital divide, closing the gaps, getting to the people who were outside, like without the understanding that eventually that closing the digital gap, the digital divide, closing those gaps means that you are now in their digital uh, smart contract layer prison. Um, but the light to me says photonics. The reason for this is plain. For one thing, it will be impossible for humanity to acquire a common outlook if large sections of it are the illiterate inhabitants of a mental world entirely different from that in which a fully educated man can have his being. A world of superstition and petty tribalism in place of one of scientific advance and possible unity. Now, now that frame, again, a mental world that is entirely different, I would say that like an indigenous cosmology, like that is centered in, in on land and story and history, um, and is that doesn't forefront science as the primary way of looking at the world, like that is what they seek to erase. And that, that is, builds on the, the, the genocide of the, the, the you know, original people of the Americas. I mean, that, that is what they are trying to erase, that that mental outlook has to go away in order for everything to fit within the machine, right? Superstition, like petty tribalism, they're saying that in, in place of the sacred and in place of being a good relative and part of a system. Um, so, and how do they do that? Well, they're doing that through literacy. And, and, it, and it kills me because like, I, I grew up on books, like I loved reading um, and I still read a lot, right? Um, different kinds of stuff now, but the reading is also part of the coding program. I mean, it goes back to the, the you know, the Bibles and the, the early texts um, that the, the, the common reading is a way to create consensus reality. And now, now reading actually the new literacy is media literacy, right? The whole Marshall McLuhan, like we're navigating a world of, of visual imprinting. Um, but the literacy campaigns that are pay for success programs, these third grade reading score programs, that's part of the, the Chicago a social impact bond was not just pre-K linked to special education, but was actually linked to um, third grade reading scores. The, the, the literacy part is part of the, the programming. So this is again from Huxley, Julian Huxley. Thus mass communication against illiteracy um, and for a common fundamental education must form part of the UNESCO's program. Further, a satisfactory common scale of values can obviously not be attained so long as large sections of mankind are preoccupied with the bare material and physiological needs of food, shelter, and health. 
Again, science will not achieve its optimum rate of advance either in research or in the application until its light, photonics, its light is more evenly shed over the dark surface of the world's ignorance so as to provide a more equitable distribution of scientists, of apparatus, of equally important in the long run, of popular understanding of science. And so the other piece of this, and this is something that Sebs has touched on, is this idea of melanin, um, that dark, the, 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 the black and brown people of the world, the people that are highly melanated, melanin is actually a material that is used to turn nanomachines and make them biocompatible. If you look at like the biomedical use of melanin, it's really central. So if you start factoring in um, the, the photonics and the nanomachines and the, the, the use, the, the, just the, the downlookingness on like the cosmology of the darker nations in favor of an enlightenment, right? This Western enlightenment that is incredibly embedded within Keynesian, Keynesian economics, within behavioral economics, within moral markets. Um, it all starts to kind of come together. So, and I will point out up here about the idea of meeting people's bare material needs. Well, that's universal basic income. And in, you know, in the research, you'll see one of the leading groups that's piloting these programs, you know, $1,000 a month is Kellogg. And the Kellogg family, they were documented eugenicists. Um, they came out of a eugenics uh, health and wellness program, the Seventh-day Adventists. And, uh, you know, vegetarianism and wellness, but also highly, highly connected to eugenics. And they were doing like a UBI pilot in Jackson, Mississippi. So you need to get everybody like on this baseline to create the consensus reality, which is the next, this next phase that's coming. Um, so, you know, this is just an, an article that I found from January that's talking about looking for the brain's quantum network and information processing through light in the brain. And this is something that I think like Stuart Hameroff and Roger Penrose have been looking at for a while, the, this idea of quantum and the microtubules and light, uh, but it's getting more attention. This is an article from the International Society for Optics and Photonics. Um, and then it, it, it sort of talks a little bit about like, hey, maybe a light bulb really does go on in our brain. Like we have these channels for light and light, the transmission of information through our consciousness in the light space. And so... Again, bringing the light, controlling that. Um, many people are probably already aware, but the World Goodwill Association, it has consultative status with the United Nations. Uh, this is part of the Lucius Trust. The Lucius Trust was Alison Foster Bailey, uh, early theosophists, and they were uh, initially had a publishing house called the Lucifer Publishing Company in the early 1920s. They then changed the Lucifer Publishing Company into the Lucius Trust. Um, but that, that was Lucius in both uses was the light bringer. And, you know, here they're sort of justifying it, um, you know, why they had Lucifer attached to their program. It says, uh, this is from their website, the Lucius Trust's website. There are comments on the World Wide Web claiming the Lucius Trust was once called the Lucifer Trust. Such was never the case. However... However, for a brief period of two or three years in the early 1920s, when Alice and Foster Bailey were beginning to publish the books published under her name, they named their fledgling publishing company Lucifer Publishing Company. And by 1925, the name was changed to Lucius 
publishing company, and it has remained so ever since. Both Lucifer and Lucius comes from the same root word, Lucius, being the Latin generative case meaning light. The Baileys' reason for choosing the original name are not known to us, but we can only surmise that they, like the great teacher H.P. Blavatsky, for whom they had enormous respect, sought to elicit a deeper understanding of the sacrifice made by Lucifer. Alice and Foster Bailey were serious students and teachers of theosophy, a spiritual tradition which views Lucifer as one of the solar angels, those advanced beings who theosophy says descended, thus the fall, from Venus to, plant, to our planet eons ago to bring the principle of mind to what was then animal man. In the theosophical perspective, the descent of these solar angels was not a fall or sin, into sin or disgrace, but an act of sacrifice as is suggested in the name Lucifer, which means light bearer, okay? So, so that's their explanation of the Lucius Trust. And then it goes on, There's a, I have a page featured here from the Lucius Trust about uh, the support of the United Nations, that they have cons consultative status with the Economic and Social Council. And they have a division called World Goodwill that is uh, recognized by the Department of Global Communications as an NGO and that they are a community that is working actively on uh, with the UN and on the sustainable development goals. So, you know, again, photonics, light sustainability. Uh, th this is a paper that I would encourage people to look at from 2012 from the World Goodwill Association called The Child Awakening the Consciousness of the Soul particularly in light of the role of soul bound tokens. Um, and it's from 2012 and it's from the, and it all sounds really nice if you don't have the lens to look at it with that. The idea is to actually capture the consciousness of the child and the soul into the Voronoi crystal in the blockchain box. Um, now I can't say that the paper doesn't say straight up that that's what they're doing, but when you know that that's the background to uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and UNESCO and eugenics and man in the biosphere, uh, it's very, very relevant. Uh, I will just say the World Goodwill, uh, you know, it, the, the document, it, they have uh, uh, offices on Wall Street, um, in Whitehall Court in London and in Geneva. So this is like very well placed. They work closely with UNICEF. And, and then I, I move on to show that UNICEF, their innovation fund is pushing virtual reality uh, education. Uh, there's an image of Nubian VR, which is a highly occulted object. It's these Oculus headsets. Again, Oculus meaning like an opening, but literally all of the senses of this, this black child, uh, boy, like his, his eyes are covered. And it, in the place of his eyes is an infinity loop and this sort of field, uh, this like, uh, you know, field that's in each loop of, and it's called Nubian VR. And so in this, they're saying like, those kids are never gonna have a real human teacher. The best we can do is a, a, a headset and then the blue light actually helps to calcify the pineal pineal gland pineal gland uh and and there's piezoelectric energy in that too so like there's it, there's a lot of stuff going on and actually unicef innovation is um uh you know its largest funder is disney which is kind of crazy and uh the 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 innovation fund is actually based out of singularity university so it, to me it just feels really clear that through this sustainable living, the sustainable living is shed your body and move into avatar life of the Moonshot Project. Um, train your children to accept that as their future and we will educate them thusly into that while we're, we're mining their data for Sophia the Robot and making profit on the impact finance space. Uh, Singularity University is in California. Um, and yeah, so yeah, this is 
that's so there we there we have photonics um and let's see and then this last bit i'll just talk this is the education and so for me when i saw that this was in madison i was like wow so my earliest research i have a blog post that said how did the department of defense end up in my child's classroom because i never really thought about where the educational technology came from and it came from something called advanced distributed learning or adl and it was part of the department of the defense uh, it started in the mid 1990s at the advent of the age of uh, cloud computing um uh yeah so uh uh uh, uh Melanin is used in making nanotechnology biocompatible. I see someone's asking about the melanin question. Yeah, so um, it is, it is they're, they're, they're mining it as a material. And actually, Sebs had found some papers that date to the 1920s where they were talking about actually like scraping skin to get access to the melanin. So I'm sure they have other ways of accessing it today, but if you, if you look up nanotechnology and melanin, like many articles come up and it's about to reduce the toxic, toxic, the body rejecting the nanotechnology, they code it in melanin. So, okay. So going back to advanced distributed learning, this is where competency-based education, mastery-based education, proficiency-based education, social emotional learning badges, PBIS, it all came out of this. And as cloud computing was getting underway, um, they were doing distance learning initially for the National Guard and then for the Department of Defense, and then for federal employees, and then Clinton signed this executive order 13111 um, in the later 90s that were essentially like, the whole world will be better from educational technology. Now, if, you, if you've listened to some of my other recent, like wandering around the labyrinth and looking at um, WGBH Boston and the creation of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, like it goes back much further than the 1990s, only they couldn't do easy wireless remote learning. They were do using televisions and, um, you know, more simplified computing systems, like the Plato systems, these early systems. But this is just an extension of that history is wireless computing. And even the E-Rate Act that was pushing getting all of the schools wired and the libraries wired, that was part of it, but even early on, Apple came in and was pushing to have wireless fall under E-rate as well, because they knew that it was going to be, you know, first wireless and then internet of bodies, first wireless and then wearables. So, so there were there are four different collabs for advanced distributed learning to advance distance learning, but eventually distance learning is going to be performing behaviors in in virtual reality or extended reality. Um, with haptics and VR headsets and our augmented reality glasses. Um, so the, the main office is in Alexandria, Virginia. So no surprise there. That's where, you know, so much of the tech, like finance policy lobbying arms are. Uh, the military uh, version is in Orlando. So it's, Orlando is a center of, of war gaming simulation technology. Again, no, no, no coincidence. It's right up next to Disney and the Space Coast. Uh, the workforce program is in Memphis. And again, I, I sort of feel like that might be a slightly occulted location as well. Um, and so that's aligning the work-based education because the badges will be for lifelong learning. And then the K-12 gaming space is at Wisconsin. And so that's how I knew Wisconsin because I always knew, um, uh, you know, what was, what was going on there. Like, oh yeah, that's where they have the K-12 education badging embedded in the military. So here I'll just pull up, this is a, a map that I made uh, 
again, back in the day when I was first starting all of this on Little Sis in the center is the Advanced Distributed Learning Program. Uh, they talked about something called PERLS, P-E-R-L-S, -E the Pervasive Learning System and the Learning Registry, this idea that you would have a learning locker. Now, that is your digital twin. Like the Learn Card, that is your learning registry, the learning locker. You're going to have a health twin too, right? You'll have a health registry. That is these electronic health portals in the game. Um, the units of learning, just like the, the units of health data, were called GIFT, the Generalized Intelligent Framework for Tutoring. And what the Navy was working on was essentially that everyone would have their own virtual tutor that would hang out with them for their whole life. Uh, you, you can see that in like this uh, reasoning mind had this little icon of a little genie uh, that was used in Texas school systems, although it had ties to Russia. And the kids would all get attached to their little avatar that would like give them hints. And it was like your personal tutor. So like your Alexa, right? Alexa becomes your life coach forever, whether you like it or not. And so this was being linked towards nudging you on the pathway, um, performing, like performing standards, whether it be on, on a phone, um, on a laptop, or through wearable technology. And these were called performance assessments, interoperable performance assessments. And so, you know, they're tricking all the teachers because when I was in it, like they, they didn't want standardized tests, they wanted performance-based tests. Like, oh, do a project, we like that, we know what that looks like, that's a much more meaningful um, way to judge uh, someone's aptitude. But they're not telling people, well, the plan is to put you in a smart shirt and have like an AI, like facial recognition camera watch you while you do it. Like that's not what they were telling teachers. So they, they just lead people along and tell them what they want to hear and they don't tell them the whole story. Uh, Aptima was working on that. Uh, they were working on something called uh, HPML, Human Performance Measurement Language. So that's again, tracking people in virtual space. And these were all being prepared through uh, the Army virtual learning environment and the soldier-centered Army learning environment, SCALE and VLE. And so again, I'm not saying, like it makes sense to a certain extent to do some of this remote training for the military because if you're gonna try to like raid compounds or figure this stuff out, like assuming like, and again, I'm not a military person, I'm, I'm someone who would prefer to have that not be an issue at all, but in that use case, sure, you would wanna go through a bunch of different scenarios and you would wanna to try to make it as simulated as possible. But the thing is, as with so many things, the war machine, the technologies developed there are then pulled out and used in commercial ways, used on the rest of us. And so, you know, the, the Army Research Lab had a very close collaboration at, with the University of Southern California on this Institute for Creative Technologies up here in the upper uh, left. And there, in 2008, they had a whole uh, gathering called Intelligent Lifelong Learning Companions. Uh, and it was all these papers about how they were gonna create a lifelong learning companion for you, right? And, and Bran Farron uh, and Mike Zaida were some of the, the, the leads on that project. Uh, it, it, it was an outcome of an effort uh, that brought together people doing modeling and simulation in Hollywood and the defense industry. And so you've got like Disney meets the Army Research Lab. <laughs> And, and, then, and then we turn that into lifelong learning and training uh, with a nice dose of like behavioral programming, um, you know, to get you to do what we want to do. And all of this is tracked through something called XAPI technology. So that, that is fed into the human capital analytics, um, which I have a clip later that talks about yet analytics and how this optimization and efficiency is really central. Uh, Roostichi software, which is based in Tennessee, 
they helped develop something called SCORM, the Shareable Ob Content Object Reference Module. Uh, and that was essentially how you interfaced with data on traditional devices like laptops. But it didn't work for tablets or phones or wearables. So eventually they developed this new uh, XAPI or Tin Can API technology that would work more broadly with the internet of everything. And in all of this, uh, one of the key people in this early executive order that Clinton did setting up the whole program, uh, he created something called the Advisory Committee on Expanding Training Opportunities. And again, this is your lifelong learning and globalization 4.0 telepresence labor remote work through a robot. And the co-chairs of that were Hillary Pennington, who uh, later became uh, the head of programs for the Ford Foundation and uh, worked on programs for the Gates Foundation, as well as Christine Hemrick, who uh, had ties to the FCC and Cisco systems. And so um, big business was always going to engineer you into uh, their uh, human capital program. And so all of this is against the backdrop. As soon as I saw Madison, like you can imagine, this is the window into education. Um, again, I, I forgot to mention Elaine Rayborn. Uh, she's out of Sandia National Labs, but she does gigs over at the Orlando ADL Collab. And she is all about transmedia learning and storytelling, like pervasive storytelling across many different areas. Um, so you would, you would have a story that you would experience on your laptop and then it would pop up on your phone and then it might be through your augmented reality glasses and then and it would hold the storyline across and it was about measured behavior change for the military, but then they were applying that in non-military settings. And so you can imagine us inhabiting a game, inhabiting literally a simulation gaming environment at which the people in the US military and Hollywood have been deeply embedded in building it out and refining it for, you know, probably 25 years or more, right? And we don't know this game, it's not our game. and. And we're allowing the game to be built, this Web3 smart contract layer around us. And meanwhile, like what happens to the children? Like what happens to this next generation? So I just have a couple of clips. This talks a little bit about human capital and XAPI. Um, so let me see, I have to measure, but you have to do more than that. You have to aggregate. And in this case, we're talking specifically about managing training, education, talent management, all the stuff related to humans. So XAPI is really about capturing experience, very broadly defined, about learning in a way that software programs can talk to each other about it. All right, so it matters to you all because it gives you the tools for having personalization, for having adaptivity of your training and education content not just within one silo of an adaptive trainer or of an intelligent tutor, but across potentially a whole person's career. Just imagine all that big data you could have across all of these training and education and maybe even operational experiences. And it's already you know, semi-structured, it's already prepared. You can start to do some pretty awesome analyses and start to look at optimizing. I mean, who knows what? Which classes people go through? You know, What's the series of different uh, of, uh, experiences that people have um, it's almost like item analysis but at this kind of enterprise level it could keep you employed for years you can start to use big data to guide where do you place people how do you assemble teams how do you ensure that this person who's being primed for this leadership position gets the best quality training and education experiences they need XAPI was also just recently recommended in this new 
Department of Defense Instruction 1322.26, but I will say that the answer is to embrace learning analytics. And in this case, what I mean is artificial intelligence for education and training. So specifically, I'm talking about the measurement, collection, analysis, reporting of data on learners in their context for the purposes of understanding and optimizing learning and the environments in which it occurs. The thing that is really powerful is when you put it all together, because a single standalone system will only give us limited insights. It's when we start to pool those data together across different training and education experiences, operational experiences, talent management experiences, that we really start to put the puzzle together. All right, so yeah, so, if you listen to her, understanding the backdrop to that is eugenics, is straight up eugenics. I mean, and so the pathway planning and the cybernetic reinforcement systems and the fact that they think the vast majority of people are really dumb and don't deserve anything nice is really terrifying. Um, now, now she's talking about learning data, but I'm saying the exact same things are probably going to be applied to health data as well. and. So think about what kind of teams they're building and to what end, like what are the teams for? Um, so I, I will just, I'll take a minute to read a little bit out of Huxley now, because I think this is really important. Within this, I think, guided self-organization into a collective, they actually want individuation. They want individual units. And so I think in some ways, the identity politics we've experienced is very much about amplifying identity in opposition to other polarized identities and to make us own um, really robust and granular identities across many different systems and then to use social media to use inflammatory content to drive people into like a polarized position even if they're not really aware that they cared about an issue like they're forced to choose so that they can reinforce the individual and so that they have this constellation. Remember what Huxley was saying is we want variety. We want variety within the population to achieve this social progress end. They're amplifying it, but they want to know what it is and how to use it. So they may, and they may reinforce your identity, right? Like once they have it set up, they may reinforce your identity into a particular mold because they've made an investment in you being that particular thing that they don't want you to walk away from. Like they don't, wouldn't want me to walk away from being a rule follower in this game to someone who was looking in a more questioning way because they want to make predictions and the predictions they're trying to ensure as much constancy as possible. So keep that in mind as I read this from Huxley. Uh, the fact of human difference has another implication for UNESCO. Every encouragement should be given to the study of distinct psychophysical types. Okay, psychocognitive physical health. Now think about that in terms of psychometrics and education testing services and all the tests like we took in school as a kid and the presidential fitness test and all that. They want to know your type. What is your type? Such work has been uh, begun by men like Kretschmer, Draper, and Sheldon, but needs to be pushed much farther before secure generalizations can be drawn from it. When the time comes, however, they will be important. For one thing, they will be of great value in job selection, in picking those who are most likely to profit from a particular sort of training or are most suitable for a particular kind of work. Conversely, we shall then be enabled to lay down that certain types of men should be debarred from holding certain types of positions. Okay, so that is the control. That is AI controlling the globalized labor force through the badging. 
And that's exactly what the woman just said on that clip. Okay, um, still more important, uh, any such generalizations will give us in deeper understanding of the variation of human nature, and in doing so will enable us correctly to discount the idea of men of this or that type. Thus, it has already seems clear that fanatics and overzealous doctrinaire moralists are generally of the general type christened asthenic by Kretschmer, and the time will doubtless come when we shall be able to more precise to be more precise and say that a particular subtype of asthenic is definitely prone to over-rigid moralizing, depending on an exaggerated guilt complex, combined with a tendency to introversion, and therefore that men of this type should not be allowed to do what they are likely to be itching for, namely be arbiters of morals or in any way responsible for the punishment of offenders. Okay, so they're, they're creating psychometric profiles of people and then deciding what their opportunities are based on that. And I, I find it really interesting that they, they seem to really be downplaying morality. And I think it's because they want like evolving ethics. And then I'll, I'll read this section. Um, uh, variety is desirable, but the existence of weaklings, fools, and moral deficients cannot be but bad. It is also much harder to reconcile politically with the current democratic doctrine of equality in face of it, indeed, the principle of equality of opportunity must be amended to read equality of opportunity within the limits of aptitude. Thus, it is a fact, however disagreeable, that a considerable percentage of the population is not capable of profiting from higher education. To this point, we shall return later. It is equally a fact that a considerable percentage of young men have to be rejected for military service on grounds of physical weakness or mental instability, and these grounds are often genetic in origin. Back to eugenics. Again, many people are not intelligent or scrupulous enough to be entrusted with political responsibility, a fact that which unfortunately does not prevent quite a number of them from attaining it. To adjust the principle of democratic equality to the fact of biological inequality is a major task for the world and one that will grow increasingly more urgent as we make progress towards realizing equality of opportunity. To promote this adjustment, a great deal of education of the general public will be needed as well as new research. In both tasks, UNESCO can and should cooperate. This does not mean, of course, that UNESCO should aim at labeling, docketing, or dragooning humanity. It means that it should encourage all studies and all methods which can be used to ensure that men find the right jobs and are kept away from the wrong jobs to ensure that individuals find outlets satisfying to their temperament and work appropriate to their talents, while at the same time ensuring that society is not overburdened with people in positions for which they are inadequate or still worse, they are unqualified. So, yes. Um, Right. So think about that. Now, I'm just going to take a minute and replay the Hoskinson clip um, because, because it's worth remembering that this is actually what's happening. Okay. Which is a deal that we have closed with the Ministry of Education containing 5 million students using a technology called PRISM integrated in the Cardano blockchain. Every one of these students will have a digital ID called a DID, and that DID carries with it metadata that will travel with them throughout their entire academic life. And like those who left Facebook's uh, clutches of the university into the real world, uh, will actually follow them into the economic world. So as they graduate, as they go into the economy, 
Eventually, this infrastructure can be used for property, for payments, for voting, and all other manners of their economic life. And what's beautiful about this Evergreen Deal is it's extensible. Our priorities and goals are directly aligned with the vision and priorities and goals of the Ethiopian government. In a recently published doctrine of Ethiopia 2025, there was a bold vision to digitize the country on four pillars, the first of which was a national ID system. It is our belief that the work we have done here with PRISM and Cardano for these 5 million students will inevitably grow to be an inspiration and perhaps the system for 107 million Ethiopians, allowing them for the first time to globalize on equal terms with the United States, the European Union, China, and other modern developed economies. In addition to this, this system goes far beyond just identity. Our belief is that it can be used for, to help people procure jobs, to help people prove their skills, because the system can verify credentials, the system can verify certificates, the system can be used for a litany of activities which are required for people to understand who are credible actors to deal with and who have earned the right to have a job. The flagship of which... Right, okay. So who are credible actors? They will track them from preschool and determine who, who has the right to have a job. And that's the AI, right? The AI is making that decision. And, and again, he's saying they're in alignment with the government, but I would like to point out that you could, if you understand governance as cybernetics, like you could replace an elected government with a theocracy, with, with a technocracy, with fascism, with communism. You, you could have any one of those assortments and it would still function in the same way as a governing mechanism. Um, oh, uh, yeah, it's from, I think, when Cardano was rolling out their Africa plan. And I think it's important, did you note it? It's called PRISM. It's called PRISM. So yeah, the PRISM, right? And so so we've got that. And then this last bit that I'm going to read, oh, I guess there's a couple more. Okay. No. So, okay. So here's the last, the last bit. Uh, these things being so, it becomes clear that the approach of UNESCO must be to adopt certain general principles concerning education. Um, not only that it should fit him to take his place as a member of the community and society into which he is born, but certain further principles which have been lacking in existing systems of, of education. Okay, so these are the principles. First, education can and should be a permanent and continuing process. The mind is capable of growth throughout life and provision must be made for assisting its growth. In other words, for education among adults of all ages and not only children and young people. Yes. And of course, we know you do learn things and people should be given opportunities to learn things. But this is about maximizing cognitive functioning for the purposes of the machine on blockchain. This was not coming from altruism. And so, you know, once you know that this idea of adult education, like in spatial computing, takes on a different feeling. So lifelong learning on the ledger. Next, the education has a social as well as an individual function. It is one of the means by which society as a whole can become conscious of its traditions and its destiny can fit itself to make adjustment to new conditions and can inspire it to make new efforts towards a fuller realization of its aims. Again, so the social function of education, consensus reality, reinforcing uh, collective tradition and also this idea, I guess, of, you know, ultimately if when demanded self-sacrifice for that is the, the social reinforcement and then again, allowing the machine to learn their social relations. 
Um, and and then in the new hybrid form of school, the badge-based learning, competency-based education, uh, whether that is work-based learning or project-based learning outside of school, uh, which is central to this proficiency-based model, um, they actually want to know how you function with other people and maybe even other machines or other non-human consciousnesses. And so they want to create spaces for that interaction. That's why um, you know, the social impact bonds you know, for pre-K, why they have the We Play Smart Tables and Educare, they're not single player games, they're multiplayer games because the richest data sets come for how we interact with one another. And then thirdly, the scientific research is cap that scientific research is capable of improving the technique of education to a very large extent. And accordingly, UNESCO must give every encouragement to research in this field. Now, scientific research is educational technology and data analytics. And clearly, the education system is one of the, the primary nodes of building out the digital twin of people and in their consciousness. Further, since the world today is in process of becoming one, and since a major aim of UNESCO must help in the speedy and satisfactory realization of this process, UNESCO must pay special attention to international education. And again, they, they always knew that the metaverse, the new empire was a global empire. It was a one world order plan, right? So the international education is important. Um, and so I will just say, like someone shared with me a, a video yesterday and it was, it was from people in, in the Salt Lake City area and moms and very well-meaning and very well-intentioned moms who are concerned about all of these issues that we're all concerned about. Um, and yet I, I feel like the way in which people's attention are addressed, like I don't know that they have a firm understanding of the structure and the way that they are being told a story to lull them into an enchantment to accept things that are unacceptable. And that much his, like, there's a lot of online storm and drong that is stirred up to keep people focused in their attention, focused in certain directions and not others. And, you know, I, I feel like if, and I, I've, I've gone to Salt Lake City a couple times, I made public presentations. If, if the people there who largely identify as people of faith, with conservative values understood that blockchain education vouchers were the gateway to avatar life into this post-human existence in a simulation, like I would hope that they would have something to say about it, even though maybe their neighbors working at a nice corporate job in Silicon Slopes or at BYU in the digital identity space are the ones who are rolling it out, right? And, and so how much does the fact that we're fed certain stories to keep our direction in certain ways that reinforce our belongingness and our social groups and our our comfort level in that storyline serve to allow this to unfold because we're not able to step out into a to get the higher view right and then to to be able to as cliff says put down the hammer and not make everyone wrong but still look at it right like if we can put down the hammer and we don't have to like pound everybody who's not doing things exactly the way we want that we can look with like some compassion at the system as a whole and figure out like how to navigate within it in ways that might be more beneficial to our families and our communities. So anyway, the educational technology, you know, every time I go back to Utah, like that hits me over the head, like that is the core of this is this simulation twinning program. And it's a military simulation twinning program. And yet many of the people in those spaces are being pivoted to have their attentions pulled into other polarizing directions. And, and this is just going to come in and they're going to like accept a digital voucher um, 
for homeschooling or classical online schooling or something as this uh, wonderful solution to their problem of escaping uh, progressive uh, politics or uh, the thought police. And when in reality, it's, it's not that. Like neither of those things are right, but it's the thing that they're gonna be driven into. I think that they'll have regrets in the end. Um, okay, so do, 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 do. I'm just trying to think the one last, oh, I wanna do, pull one more clip. This is a short uh, production from the guy who's at Yet Analytics. And the, the Yet Analytics is the XAPI tin can that's going to, that uses XAPI to manage human capital and to map the pathways. And he's talking about a military uh, contract that they took for some of this efficiency social engineering. Now, it's a little choppy because I made this for Twitter and it was a longer video, so it has lots of shortcuts and people are like, oh, that's that's like all concocted and they she did something to that video. It's not, I just dropped out like a lot of the short things to make it fit in the two minutes. So it's all a legit video and I have, like if you go to the actual original source, if you poke around, like I always link back to the original, you can li listen to the whole thing. But I think this this two minutes is a really important thing to listen to in terms of enlightenment, optimization, and social engineering and understanding the big data of human capital. Several months ago, the Department of Defense open sourced uh, a specification for experiential data. That is the data of people doing, learning, working within connected environments. And we developed a commercial platform uh, based on, on that specification. Back in December, uh, we were invited to present work that we were doing in the gathering simulation data uh, from flight simulators and game engines. Um, at uh, the annual ITSEC uh, Military Training Simulations Conference. What we did is demonstrated the ability to uh, draw data out of a flight simulator in a format that was interoperable with uh, wearable data, that uh, we were collecting biometric data uh, at the same time uh, via Android Wear. So we were able to gather biometric data, heart rate uh, movement among participants in the simulation while at the same time gathering the uh, simulation data, bringing it together in a unified common format and visualizing it live. The ability to triangulate different forms of data to help you to identify patterns, trends, behaviors that otherwise might be less intuitive but the ability to passively make uh, the tracking of human performance and business performance a part of expectation of what it means to be a worker, to contribute to an organization, to be able to have technologies that provide that in a passive, behind the scenes, very integrated job embedded format that actually shows the real work, the real life of, of what people are doing. That's the special, the special offering that XAPI brings to the table. The integration of XAPI technologies in to the day-to-day, -day, all of the operational technology within an organization makes that ability to gather and that ability to an analyze and then make decisions based on what people are doing and how they're performing, that makes it a lot, a, a lot more special. We've built a data architecture that puts its arms around where the world is going. I don't think we want that hug. <laughs> I don't think we want that hug. So again, efficiency, that's, you know, when Cliff and I were talking about the outside in robot, they want everyone to live in the outside in robot forever for their lifelong learning program. So, uh, so yeah, so ADL. So one of the, the former research assistants, it's this power couple, and they left the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, a few years back, uh, 
like within the past five to 10 years and went to UC Irvine in California. Uh, but they, they got their start, Constance Steinkuhler. Uh, I first saw Constance Steinkuhler, she came into my attention at the, the Democratic uh, National Convention in Philadelphia. And it was a, uh, the Atlantic Magazine had rented a sports bar across from the convention center and for the week and they were doing all sorts of uh panel discussions and you could you could you know sign up and, and and watch these panel discussions and one was about education in the creative economy and the sponsor of it was epic games and so at the time you know it had constance steinkiller was there uh helen gim who's our city council progressive city council person was there it was a facilitator from the atlantic magazine and i think megan was the guy's name from epic games and uh, uh, Suzanne Delbene from Microsoft and Washington State. And so they, they were all in there. And um, essentially the gist of this, and it was supposed to be education in the creative economy, but, but what the Megan guy from Epic Games was saying is like, we need your kids to code our video games. Like we need your kids to code our video games. And I thought, well, that's not education. But I realized what he means is like, we need your kids to code the new empire and defend it. Um, and that's the video game. The new, the new way of living is to live in the, in, in, extended reality and we, we need them to code all of that. Uh, so Steinkuhler was, was present for that event. Uh, she's, uh, she works in informatics and game design. Uh, she was a policy analyst in the Obama uh, administration and sort of part of this idea of serious games and changing social behaviors through gaming. Uh, and, and, uh, so and she's part of something now, she and her husband, the Games Learning and Society. Uh, it's, a, it's a gathering and a conference that they started in 2005, and it is connected to MIT as well. So, you know, MIT is also, you know, the, the, the digital currency space. And so this sort of this is her background. She uh, she's now at UC Irvine. Uh, she is the chair of this uh, electronic gaming conference in eSports. So you can picture like health connected to eSports. Um, they've been working on this conference for games learning and society since, uh, between 2005 and 2016. Uh, she was on the faculty of this Wisconsin Institute for discovery, which is an emerging technology space working in virtual environments. And, uh, yeah, was an advisor to education within video games of the white house in 2011, 2012. So at the time, again, We've been hit like parents and teachers in the in the public education space over the head for over a decade with all these increasingly high stakes and intrusive standardized tests. And then they back off and they start saying, well, maybe we can do projects. Well, maybe we we care about emotional lives of children. Well, maybe we want all this other stuff now that we've got our digital identity th systems going, our mastery transcripts and uh, wearable technologies, right? And so maybe we could do all that in a game and you could learn in a game. And that's actually what Michael Crow of Arizona State University and the founding chair of InQtel, the CIA's venture capital arm is like, he and Gates were saying, well, we should have a future where uh, it's it's about gaming, uh, that, that, that your future education is you play one long game and at the end of the game, you, you get your degree and that that's what is planned. So this is a slide from a, 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 a previous talk that Jason and I did uh, featuring the Entertainment Software Association. Uh, Constance Steinkuhler is in the red here behind the, the guy's head there. And uh, I, I will just read off the title of this panel presentation from 2017. The future is gaming, the transformative power of video games as a platform for education, health, and social impact, okay? education, health, and social impact. So that, that's pay for success. 
that's wearables in the two main areas of digital twinning, your cognitive mental state, which is the education and your health space, which is your biological function and kinetic uh, space. So those are things. And uh, on this other side, you know, I wrote a whole series about Brazil being targeted again by the World Bank for pay for success finance and uh, using identity politics to draw, especially for women, uh, women of color, Latina women, uh, black women, in girls into the space of coding, STEM, and esports, and and uplifting that, like uplifting teams, esports teams in the favelas to get them on board. That sending children to sort of dark subterranean computer labs, like with very high end gaming consoles, is is what progress looks like. Uh, so that's. That's Constance, and then her husband is Kurt. And, and this is interesting to me. This was a uh, Edutopia, again, George Lucas does Edutopia, and his, his wife, uh, Melody, oh, I can't remember Melody's name. She's a major venture capital investor. Uh, they, they have Edutopia. A lot of it is about consuming digital media and gaming. And uh, so he was doing a talk on civic engagement in gaming, right? Because in e-government, they want us to perform all of our behaviors, all of our particularly our social behaviors, our value-laden behaviors in the game, right? So civic participate, but participate in the game where we can steer you and that where your behaviors are, are can be managed by the AI and we can add all of what you do there into the machine learning. Uh, this is his Google uh, Scholars page talking about from 2005 games in the future of learning. Uh, environmental detectives, augmented reality platform for environmental simulations. So that's the other part. Uh, Mad city mystery, scientific argumentation with place-based augmented reality. And I was seeing this here in Philadelphia, these, these programs that are working about m blending citizen science and augmented reality in smart city environments. Um, but again, it's from the military. They know about MKUltra, like they, they maybe, you know, my first experience online of seeing virtual reality uh, from a from the perspective of an audience member, it was a talk. It was a British guy who was doing a demo at Penn State. This was early on in my education work, maybe like 2014. And he was he showed a clip of putting a VR headset on his sister-in-law, and it was a roller coaster. And you know, I just watching her in the clip, like her panic at this roller coaster experience. Now, some people love roller coasters. They're not my cup of tea. If you put me in a roller coaster VR, I would be sick, right? And so my initial reaction was like, this is a potential torture device. Like as much as you can put people in this for good experiences, you could put them in for very, very treacherous experiences too. And, and I think that that, and, and it's capturing all of your biometric data coming back off of it. So so these games, like literally mind games are, are are coming. So she was on the staff at the Discovery Institute. Um, it was a, a, a spinoff of this Mortgage Institute. Uh, the Mortgage Institute, evidently, there, there was a guy at University of Madison, Wisconsin, who was one of the earliest pioneers in stem cell research, which is interesting, again, coming out of the eugenics breeding embryology program. And it was quite controversial. So they decided to remove that research out of the university and set it in a separate institution. So that's what Morgridge is. Um, it, it hosts the virtual environment groups and the games and learning. So it's all within this discovery. So she was on staff there. Uh, this is an image uh, from their website about the virtual environment group. 
Um, you know, and I, I saw this about three years ago, but just they're trying to figure out how to, it's, it's very ironic. They want, at the same time, they want to disembody us from our bodies. They want to embody the robots. <laughs> and so it's this weird inversion of like, please give up your embodiedness to the machines that are seeking to replace you and live in the box, right? Like the, the prism wants to, to, to trade places with you. And, and even the, there's an image here with this glowing crystal and these people in a box. I think they talk about uh, a cave, a six-sided virtual reality cave. Like here guys, come into our box. Like we, we're not telling you that it's a box trap. Um, but so that this is the backdrop and uh, this is the Games Learning and Society. It's talking about, it's the longest standing games for impact research. Impact means data. They're, they're trying to change your behavior through transmedia learning. Uh, it was started in 2005. It got relocated to UC Irvine. Um, and it says, it is the premier center for transdisciplinary research and innovation in games and interactive, interactive media for learning, behavioral and social change behavioral and social change. Our core competencies are in understanding how game mechanics and game communities can be leveraged to produce conceptual, procedural, and social change. And I will say like even the game, like you, there are normal spaces online now that you don't realize it's a game. Like last night, someone invited me into one of these clubhouse things and I don't normally do that, but they, they you know, it was someone that I knew and they were looking they felt that this group needed guidance around blockchain and Web3. And so I put the app on and I agreed to do it. And like there's trolls in these rooms that you don't even know that try to redirect the conversation. And it's literally like a game. You know, it, it is a game of influence circles within these cybernetic spaces. And we have to understand that the machine is learning it as well as like any sort of assets that might be in those spaces as well. Um, so, so that's, yeah, that's, that's Kurt. That's games and learning. Oh, oh, let me see. This is no, that's just the, the their website. Never mind. Um, I think this is got so Morgridge Institute again. Its history. It's talking about fearless science and early stem cell research from human embryos in 1998. So it's really interesting. Like from this uh, emergent system, a lot of the mathematical models are based on embryology. Are looking at like ocean resources like early basic ocean creatures as embryo embryological models like their sea urchin to try to figure out like you start with something that's unified and then it develops individuality so that's what Huxley's saying is like we want to develop the individuality like but we want to guide it through the system into the super organism so the fact that the virtual reality and the gaming environments are coming out of the stem cell research i think is quite interesting in terms of the guidance um Okay, and then oh, let me just see. I guess that's. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit more UNESCO. Uh, I'm gonna talk about individuation. Okay, so and the role of art, because I think this is the thing that strikes me that our the way to stand with this, I think, isn't with a big hammer or a ray gun or a thing, it's actually with an imaginative open heart. I feel like that's that art and imagination and love, like those are, if, if, if you've got, as, as Cliff describes it, a beach head full of these giant jacks that are creating this ragged 
hostile landscape and we're navigating like we just don't bowl through it like we're we're thoughtful and we find a way to flow and that is through the creativity based in a heart space and so I think there right now what I've noticed in Philadelphia is the arts and culture sector and the humanities sectors are the most locked in to the narratives the most under control because I think um and, and, and we've seen it, like I have friends who are in the music scene too, that, that the musicians are the most under control, that the artists, that the actors, because if we unlocked that, that is, how, that is our way out of the Voronoi blockchain box polyhedra prism is, is through that space, uh, through the, this transcendental space. And so I think this is what Huxley is hinting at. The chief task before the humanities today would seem to be to help in constructing a history of the development of the human mind. Okay, the mind file, notably its highest cultural achievements. For this task, the help of art critics and artists will be needed, as well as of art historians, of anthropologists and students of comparative religion, as well as of divines and theologians, of archaeologists and classical scholars, of poets and creative men of letters, as well as professors of literature and wholehearted support of historians. Though, of course, the development of culture in a variety in various regions of the Orient must receive equal attention to those paid in the Western growth. And that's consistent with like the Berggruen Institute's work is East and West. Uh, once more, UNESCO can help by being true to its many-sidedness and bringing men together from all these various fields to help in one or other facet of the huge work. So again, it's the vast cataloging. And we're, we've been seeing the vast cataloging of all the information, of all of the arts, of all of the culture. As I've indicated above, the increase of social organization, which is the machinery of human progress, must be reconciled with and must indeed be made to promote the fuller development of individuality, which is among our chief evolutionary aims. So they do want to promote individuality. To provide guidance in this crucial problem of our times must be one of UNESCO's objectives, and to do so we require a profound and comprehensive survey of human individuality in its relation to social structure. So the individual in relation to society. This survey, if it is to be of service, must be quite novel in its approach. It must be scientific and humanist in the old sense. It must service art and morals as well as intellect. And so part of after reading Michael Talbot's book about the holographic universe is I was imagining if you have this river of the, the, the opening holographic universe, the, the sovereignty ideals, the idea of like be on blockchain, be your own person, own your own data, stand up, live your identity politics, put the banners, put the tags, put the hashtags, be a thing. Like you, you rise up out of the flow and then in doing so you become this vulnerable target for this predator energy to sort of snip you off from the river of life itself and put you in a jar on the shelf for the specimens because this does feel like a specimen thing. And um, so like they want the individual and they want it in the context but they want to actually own it and they want to own the art. Um, and then it goes on. Let me see. These are a few long pieces, but I think they're relevant. Um, in, so this is about individuation. And again, understand individuals guided into a collective, the swarm intelligence, the, the, the merits of the individuality into the whole and the steering through the, the prism. It's almost like a giant game of Tetris, right? In biology, on the other hand, individuals are readily accessible to observation. Furthermore, the degree of individuation tends to increase during evolution among higher animals, notably higher mammals, so we are forced to recognize something of the same nature as human individuality. 
human individuals to become more differentiated and for human individuality to reach greater heights of development. So they're just saying we're getting more and more individual. Um, in modern times, they, they say that the conflict between the development of individuality and the function of the individual as a cog in the social machine is challenging, all right? So they're trying to figure out the two sides. For this survey, we need a biologist and a historian, the artist, anthropologist, sociologist. We need distinctive psychophysical units, which to me sounds a lot like an avatar, right? That sounds a lot like an avatar on the, the blockchain. Um, individ individuate yourself. In fact, maybe you can have multiple identities. And then the role of the art. Art can be of help in two ways because every work of art is an individual unity. So the problem of the description and analysis of individuality can be pursued here too and along the lines differ differing from the bio biological, sorry. Uh, art, notably the visual art of a people or a period, gives us information as to its attitude to the individual and the degree of individuation achieved by its members. Um, the historian and the anthropologist can make their contribution, but only if their attention is directed to the importance of the problem. So they're like, art is the shorthand of representing society and life, right? They want, art is the key, like authentic art, the authenticity within the artistic space. And... It says that, that it is the first international agency to uplift the arts and uh, talk about that science and technology has undermined the arts, but now the arts must be lifted up on equal stage with science and play an equally important role. So that's, again, what Paul uh, uh, Glimscher is saying with the uh, neuroeconomics is that we want to bring the laws of the physical world into the social status, right? They, they want to blend the science of the material into the social relations. And, and then it's simply by talking about museums, because originally, you know, I worked at a botanic garden, I, I love museums, but they talk about bringing them alive uh, by providing uh, facilities for hands-on museums, things to do at museums, to let ordinary achieve, people achieve things. And that brings me back to a, a 2014 Ford Foundation studied paper with Elizabeth Merritt, who was a, a foresight analyst uh, who went through the uh, University of Houston foresight program. She wrote a whole paper about the future of museums in education and that when we move to the point of getting rid of schools, that museums will be doing the hands-on projects. And so if you look at all of the interactive museums and then even plans to move museums into the metaverse, that way of doing and documenting it, like documenting it with fidelity, because all of this has to be done at scale and it has to be done with fidelity. So the virtualization of everything, like it's so much more efficient to move everything into the simulation and capture the data there, than have it be outside the simulation and have to translate it in some way. Like the ultimate goal is to get everything into the simulation. And I think at the baseline level, ironically, it is the sustainability movement of man in the biosphere that is, in, central to moving us into the simulation. Um, okay, and then they talk about like world peace, uh, uh, like moving, that this is all laid in the, the center of peace. Uh, let's see, peace and progress. Uh, we need a political unification. Uh, the moral for UNESCO is clear. They are going to promote peace and security, but it can't be realized until we have uh, like a unified education, science, and, cul and culture. It must envision some for form of world political unity, whether through a single world government or otherwise, 
as the only certain means for avoiding war. However, the world political unity is unfortunately a remote ideal and in any case does not fall within the field of their competence, but that does not mean that they cannot do a great deal towards promoting peace and security through the education program. Okay, so we've got the threat of war driving peace. Um, over here is another section that literally in the conclusion, they're talking about the entry to the Cold War and the dynamic between the Soviet collective and the capitalist individual and this dynamic of how UNESCO hopes to measure it out and bring about this convergence. And, uh, you know, it says taking the techniques of persuasion and information and true propaganda that we have learned to apply nationally in war and deliberately bending them to the international uh, tasks of peace, if necessary, utilizing them as Lenin envisioned to, quote, overcome the resistance of millions to desirable change. Using drama to reveal reality and art as a method by which Sir Stephen Talent's words, truth becomes impressive and a living principle of action and aiming to produce the concerted effort which to quote Grierson once more needs as a background of faith and a sense of destiny. This must be a mass philosophy, a mass creed, and it can never be achieved without the use of the media of mass communication. And yeah, so this secular communication of in, in, um, in a moment of uh, where they're saying the world's going to end, right? Oh, there's going to be nuclear war. I don't believe that. They wouldn't build all this if they were going to just blow it up, but they need us to believe it. They need to believe that the world is going to end because you know, climate change is going to happen in 10 years and we'll all die if we don't, you know, turn everything into synthetic bio nanotechnology. Like all of the things are imperative to do it now and to do it for peace and security. And uh, yeah, and, the, and then that will happen through your digital twin. We'll just, we'll just, you know, give you the, the work assignments. Uh, we'll get you all set up with your proper work. And, you know, this will be done through things like the Learn Card. And that is connected to the World Bank. And the World Bank is running One Health. And One Health is setting up human population health against nature. And, and there will be a, a back and forth balance. And, you know, if you haven't seen the Learn card, this is the thing I keep asking everybody to pay attention to. It's your digital identity on a device, currently on a phone with a QR, with money that would be your UBI and the points you earn through compliance and your skills badges, your attributes, your unlocked achievements and your, your identity systems, both for as a student, as a driver, as a passport, and that is the, the geofencing program. So, um, you know, and this, and this all comes out of the gaming of, I, in, in, you know, Jason and I did a long presentation on war gaming in the metaverse and looking at digital child labor and how it's gonna be framed as work-based education. These crypto gaming programs are going to come with badges and that's going to be the game. That's gonna be the game that Michael Crow and Bill Gates would like for the kids and the World Bank to play to quote unquote save the world. And this model came from Evoke. It was a youth save the world online game. It was transmedia, so it was a comic book. It had a couple different layers to it. And people were supposed to work within the game collectively to solve problems. And some of it was also project-based learning. And then they were rewarded with phone cards. And so Evoke is, is a real thing. You know, I think that the, these gaming challenges, um, I'll just read the description. It says it's an award-winning multiplayer game and online educational experiences that uses storytelling, game mechanics, and social networks to prepare young people to become social innovators and create solutions to address global grand challenges like hunger, poverty, water scarcity. 
and it will support them as they get an understanding of the complex challenges and acquire skills, including uh, critical reflection and social emotional skills like empathy. Um, and that is because all of this is mining their, the being part of human. It is, it is mining all of that. So um, anyway, I guess we're, we're at three hours. So I've, I've pretty much wrapped up this map. Again, just to, to reiterate in closing, this all started out for people who maybe got here late. I got an email from someone who had been uh, talking about the adoption of an electronic health record in the Australian Capital Territory. And um, it was done by uh, Epic Systems, which is a, uh, an online health record company privately held since 1979 by Judith Faulkner, uh, who got her start getting her master's in computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and was mentored by two men who were both in the, the psychiatric field and working with early computer interfaces for health screenings. And, and the fact that that university is connected to uh, the early history of simulation modeling for uh, climate and environment, uh, poverty management, uh, eugenics, it has uh, alternative energy, including nuclear energy uh, and, and gamification, uh, gamified educational learning spaces. Uh, and I, I feel like increasingly this is, it's about pulling us into the game as, as Kevin Werbach, you know, would like to say, uh, you know, uh, you know, the biosphere is the game. I, I think uh, Bantam Cho, uh, back in the day, he, he was saying it's about civilization, right? It's the game of civilization. Some of these games, I think uh, Squire even studied how playing the game of civilization impacted educational attainment. The biosphere is the game board, man in the biosphere. It's been coming from Huxley for, for a very long time. Uh, it's about life. Actually, it's about modeling our life in a, as a performance for the machine. And I think if we can, and it says building peace, UNESCO, building peace in the minds of men and women <laughs> through, through selective cybernetics and nanotechnology, <laughs> right? And neuroeconomics and behavioral nudges, you know, that, that this, and, and, you know, they have these people who look so chipper, you know, walking through the, the you know, the, the um, I don't know, the tulips, I guess, with the sun, the solar rays and the bees and the, the fish and the swarm intelligence. Um, you know, and I'll, I will point out here in case people haven't noticed when Leo was doing his work on the man in the biosphere that their logo dating back to the late 70s or early 80s actually has an onk on it um, that's connected as M-A-B, but that at the top of the M is an, is an onk, which is the Egyptian life symbol. So anyway, well, thank you for joining me. I hope this held together for other folks um, uh, that you can see how the health systems fit with the education systems, fit with the gaming, fit with uh, radioisotope eugenics. And um, the next thing is we just need to figure out how to explain it to other people. And, you know, I'm really grateful for Eve to do her zine and we've been in touch and she's doing a follow-up. So maybe this will help her inform her uh, ideas about uh, doing a part two of Eve's zine of impact finance on the blockchain. So I don't know how many people are still here. I don't know if anybody has questions. I could just, I can wait for a moment or if you could affirm that does make sense or it's kind of epic. <laughs> um, uh, I am going to be uh, connecting back with Cliff next week. We've had some really good talks because I appreciate what he introduces in the conversation of tools of how to think about things. And so we're going to go back into that other labyrinth and, and get back into the, the area of neuroeconomics um, uh, next, sometime next week. So I guess I will just 
end the stream now, but thanks for joining in everyone and uh, take care.